show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, state fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues The No Miki Show we have a wonderful show today. We have Alex Press on to talk about, oh, this is really interesting, how AFL-CIO, yes, this is a very large union, uh, consortium of unions, I should say, has a lot of catching up to do on police reform. Super interesting story uh, Alex wrote in Jacobin. And then later we have Francesca Fiorentini. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, this is Femme Friday. You're watching the Nomi Key Show. We'll be right back. back to the Nomi Key Show. Oh boy. All right. Uh, we love to talk unions on the show. It's Fun Friday. Uh, very important part of the show. This piece I think was so brilliantly done. Um, Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin uh, and she wrote a piece called On Police Reform. The AFL-CIO has a lot of catching up to do. And what this highlighted to me in a very... Uh, Bearing way was just some of the dynamics internally of unions that we love to talk about, but you know are not as perfect as 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 we would like them to be. Alex, thanks for joining. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Alex, um, I guess we'll just start off with this. What what ins what inspired you? What uh, intrigued you about the FL CIO's positioning on police reform? Well, I write about labor all the time, right? So this is definitely, uh, you know, on my beat. Um, but, you know, part of this came a year ago at the height of the protest following George Floyd's murder. 
Um, you know, there were protests everywhere, including in D.C. And the AFL-CIO's headquarters actually was set on fire, um, which, you know, who knows what the thinking was behind the people who did it. But it sort of was this moment of, you know, the AFL-CIO does need to take a position about policing. Um, you know, organized labor is the sort of key force in a lot of ways for fighting oppression and exploitation, but it also is a complicated thing in that the AFL-CIO has unions inside of it as a federation that represent police officers, also ICE agents, you know, so it's, it's a tension and it's something that unions really haven't resolved. And so the AFL-CIO said that they would, you know, form a task force and come up with sort of a vision um, for reforming policing. And they did that almost a year ago. And so this report came out a couple weeks ago. That was the sort of the product of all of that planning and thought. Um, and that that report, yeah, it was published two weeks ago, um, is called The Public Safety Blueprint for Change. Um, and I was just interested in how the AFL-CIO is sort of taking a stand here because there's been pressure for them to kick out these police unions from the Federation. There's been all sorts of demands from different unions inside the Federation and outside. Um, and so this is sort of like their big statement about what they're gonna do. Um, for folks who may not be as familiar, what, what unions are in the Federation? What's the makeup here? Yeah, so the um, AFL-CIO is the largest labor federation in the United States and it's got about 12 million members. So this is, you know, I think a lot of us who maybe aren't so active in the labor movement we talk about the left this and the left that, but usually we're talking about organizations in the hundreds or thousands as far as the numbers of members. Unions, you know, as much as they've declined in the United States are still millions of people. So this is a very powerful organization, right? Um, and so there's, you know, all sorts of unions inside of it. The sort of notable thing about this task force and the report they produced is that every union represented has police officers inside of it. Um, so these are not, you know, there's only one union in the AFL-CIO that is just police officers, but other unions represent police officers as part of the many types of workers they represent. Um, so Explain that a little bit more. So so how, how does that work? Um, what do you mean? Like, are there teachers that are police officers? What, what? No, I mean that, like, for example, the Teamsters has local unions inside of it that include police officers, SEIU, you know, similarly. You might think of SEIU as like hotel workers or janitors, and that's true, but there's many different unions inside of an international union, right? Locals have various members that do various kinds of jobs. Um, so, for example, the union I'm in, the News Guild, is all journalists, um, but a lot of unions have a variety of types of workers inside of them. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say that there are police officers inside of it. Not that like journalists are also cops or something, but rather that a local doesn't <laughs> just have... As far as we know, right? Some of them, um, <laughs> not but, officially, right? Right, just just for fun, voluntarily. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I mean. So, you know, the first thing worth noting here is that the AFL-CIO decided that they would have, you know, the people producing this report about policing be police officers rather than say the other kinds of workers in the AFL-CIO who are on the receiving end of uh, police violence. So that in itself, I think, is a very uh, important choice and one that I disagree with, but is reflective of where the AFL-CIO's leadership is at on this question. Is that so, they so, sort of, yeah, go ahead. Just just for audiences, um, just for clarity. So just when you say things like there's, there's police officers within a union that may not be a police union, I'm going to throw back a little bit for our audience. We did a, an episode a few weeks ago where we were talking about how there are more employed um, 
officers in New York City that work for the universities uh, than for the actual police force, which is jarring because New York is actually <laughs> like all cops. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, the New York a, a great police. Example. Yeah, the New York local is, for example, is not in the AFL-CIO because right. th- the police generally are in independent unions called police right. benevolent associations. And so that's what the NYPD, it's, I think, the New York Benevolent Association. But you're right yes. that then, you know, cops are w- working as private security guards and so on, right? In which case they will sometimes be members of other unions. And they're not regulated by the same, yeah. So there's, there's if for folks watching, you can go back and yeah. watch that. Um Okay, so in and and this is insane. So they they decide to put together this this uh, you know investigation, whatever you want to call it. A, a, a and and they are all people who have interest in in these issues. Um, is there pushback internally? What's what are the political dynamics happening now uh, as a result? I mean, it's been a year. Like, what's that old rule? If you want something to go away, just put it in a committee and like delay it forever. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what this report reads as. Like, I describe it as verging on fantasy, and it very much is sort of you can imagine like an institution saying like, we we hear you, we see you, um, and we're going to study this very seriously. You know, the state does this all the time. They put things in committee exactly as you're saying. Um, And so, I mean, there's been pushback. This is not a new issue, but certainly in the past year after the George Floyd uprising, there's been renewed calls. And so some of these calls are, again, calling coming from inside the AFL-CIO. So certain unions have passed resolutions calling for them to disaffiliate from, for example, the International Union of Police Associations, the IUPA, which is an all-police union. That's part of the AFL-CIO. Um, And, you know, so this report has come out now. It came out a few weeks ago and there's totally criticism. It's not just myself. Um, It's, you know, there is the first person to write about this who got a leaked version of the report before it was published was Hamilton Nolan at In These Times. And he, you know, is a member of a union that has passed a resolution calling for them to, you know, kick out these police unions. And so, yeah, people are critical. I mean, he was very critical of this report. Um, And I think a, a lot of people, you know, whether they're formally in unions or not, are, you know, the people on the streets protesting, many of them are workers, right? It's majority probably workers. And so I think they would take big issue with the idea that, you know, workers voice is boiled down to what the police unions have to say, and that they're sort of being given this, you know, sort of speaking for the largest labor federation, as if everybody involved in labor agrees with, you know, police leading the charge for reform. Certainly people do not agree with that. Which unions are uh, coming out pushing back? Well, no unions have made formal statements as far as I know about this report, Um, but it takes, I mean, it completely takes issue with all of the resolutions that have passed or been made about kicking the police out of the AFL-CIO or other things, you know, sort of having codes that would keep them outside of local labor councils, things like that. Um, But just for people to get a sense of it, so this report was led by the United Steelworkers Vice President Fred Raymond. So that's one of the unions involved in this. And then the AFL-CIO's Secretary Treasurer Liz Schuler, And that's the Federation's number two position, right? So this is really being given sort of the blessing of, you know, the top leadership of the AFL-CIO. Okay, um, so I want to get very... back to that in a second. Yeah, but, and but, there's... But... Oh, go the ahead. factions internally. I'm sorry. I'm obsessed with the factions. Sure, sure. <laughs> so the factions, like, report or not, official comment or not, who are the which are the unions within the, the Federation that are pushing back and which are the unions that are like complacent or or leading the charge, you know, in, in protecting, you know, the, the police aspect. Of sure. Them? 
I mean, the reason I can't give you a good answer is this stuff is very, you know, there's serious discipline in the labor movement. We don't just talk about this stuff publicly, right? You deal with your problems internally, which I, you know, I wish the left did more of that as well. Um, but so, I mean, so there's division inside of unions, right? Like I mentioned Hamilton Nolan's union, which is the Writers Guild of America East. Um, so they formally passed a resolution that disagrees with, you know, the sort of vision being laid out here. Um, and there's certainly progressive locals within inside some of these big unions um, that also disagree with this, but there's no formalized kind of statements, right? This is just about, you know, there are people in every union that disagree with this and there are people who agree with this. And so it's an ongoing fight, right? Imagine like your workplace, you know, there are some people who are, you know, sort of have certain left-leaning views on police and maybe someone else, you know, their dad is a cop and they love the cops. So that's what it's like but at the level of millions of people, right? So there's internal division here and it's an ongoing fight, which is what makes this report useful and that it's sort of, a, it's a public version of one side of that fight. So uh, there are rumors that uh, Liz Schuler is one of the front runners to, okay, elections, let's just, let's just go through that. What, what are, when when are the next elections? And I know Liz Schuler is like one of the front runners that's being thrown out there. Yeah. Um, what's the significance of that? So the AFL-CIO presidency is currently held by a guy named Richard Trumpka. Um, and he's had it for a while. And the AFL-CIO kind of famously has long serving presidents. It's not particularly prone to succession, um, especially when it first formed, you know, people would serve for almost for life, you know, as president of the AFL-CIO. But Trumpka is going to be leaving soon. And so there's sort of internal questions about who's going to succeed him, right, as the head of this federation. Liz Schuler is one of the people that's sort of like primed to succeed him. She's already the second in command. Also, she is a woman and a lot of people in the in the AFL-CIO want a woman as president of the AFL-CIO. So that also helps the challenger to this, who has not formally said she is, you know, seeking the position is the um, is her name is Sarah Nelson. Um, and she's the president of AFA-CWA, which is the Flight Attendance Association. It's the big union. And she's sort of been this for the United States in the 21st century, a surprisingly visible labor leader because she's very outspoken, right? And and also just very good with media and I think willing to take stands that a lot of labor leaders, at least in recent years, are not. Um, so she sort of rose to prominence when she threatened a general strike against Trump, um, said she would shut down the airlines. Um, and he very quickly backed off of his plan to sort of, you know, have a government shutdown, like a fight going on. Um, and Sarah is very, you know, she is a progressive labor leader. She takes unpopular stands, you know, pro-universal health care, things like that, outwardly a feminist. Um, and so a lot of people on the left of the labor movement want her to be the new head of the AFL-CIO. And what that means is very unclear what it would mean for her to be president, but it would be an experiment, right? Someone who's willing to take a stand and take things in a very different direction. It would be hard for me to imagine this report being produced under a Sarah Nelson AFL-CIO, for example. Extremely hard. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Uh, full disclosure. I mean, she's she's uh, one of our advisors for Matriarch, so we love her. Um, cool. And she's on the show all the time, so we talk about her. So okay, okay, uh, good to know. With that being said, though, it's it's no. I mean, this is more for the one <laughs> like on the record, so it doesn't come back and bite me in the ass. Mm -hmm. um, with that being said, though, in in terms of the dynamics, like what what is the person? I mean, I, it's so much as you said of of what's happening internally is confusing for most people. But you know, you cover this beat very well, and so what are like like I could tell you what percentage of the Democratic Party was 
leaning towards a more progressive reformist, maybe not Bernie, but like reformer versus, you know, institutional Democrats. I could tell you that percentage. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean the elections are going to line up the same way, but it means that like there's an appetite for shifting things around. So within the AFL-CIO, is there a sense of what percentage is ready for a new a new AFL-CIO, a little bit more progressive in terms of 2021 politics, whether that's recognizing, you know, racial justice issues or um, issues involving the Green New Deal, which are obviously extremely complicated in the union space, um, but not necessarily in the electoral lines. Like, is mm-hmm. can you, do you have a sense of that breakdown? Yeah, I mean, no, not a particular sense. It's not like there's sort of internal polling or something, right? I mean, you can sort of look at what unions back Medicare for all, what unions backed Bernie's campaign, for example, to get a sense of who, you know, is willing to publicly take a stand, which is a very big distinction, right? Because there's this, like I said, discipline in the labor movement. And so you can have people who are sort of privately interested in a more progressive vision of labor, but it doesn't really mean much until they're willing to take a public stand and actually, you know, back someone who's a challenger. Um, And so in that sense, you know, it's still a minority of the labor movement officialdom that is sort of openly left leaning. But that doesn't mean that the rank and file of labor unions is wedded to a conservative vision of labor. Right. Um, And that's sort of the tension of socialists in the United States is how do you sort of build those elements and strengthen the opposition and the people who sort of want to push on this stuff. And so, I mean, when you see the energy in, for example, the protests around George Floyd, you see, again, a lot of working class people who are out on the streets and outraged and demanding a different country and a different society. And again, those people, many of them are union members. And so in that sense, you know, the energy is with this change, right? I mean, that is the vision that people on the left are articulating is that, you know, labor can continue to decline and it will if it doesn't change, or it can actually try something different and it can actually you know sort of lead and lead in the fight against oppression and lead in the fight against exploitation um and so it's yeah it's a war but there's certainly you know a small but very vocal minority that is trying to build that um opposition and that comes out in criticism of this report it comes out in support for Mm -hmm. someone like sarah nelson also comes out in you know the union efforts to support black lives matter or something like that right um, and so, but it's an ongoing fight. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. But I mean, when we saw stuff like the teacher strikes a couple of years ago, you know, that in itself had very progressive elements to it. You know, it was sort of looking out for the whole community, not just the workers. And when you see things like that, you can safely assume that there's, yeah, a left-leaning group inside of this union in this fight. Um, before you go, how much of, of, of the labor movement has shifted in terms of demographics? I mean, when you say things like talking about Black Lives Matter, I immediately think, well, of course, I mean, majority of workers in this country are people of color and and so many of our frontline workers in the last couple of years since the pandemic every year um, are women. And so, mm-hmm. but, but but when when we talk about like the labor movement, there, there's so much like white hard hat kind of totally. man energy coming there. Right. So, but like, what's the reality? Where, where, what's, what is it actually, has it, has it shifted, have the demographics of the labor movement and, and the Federation in particular shifted at all or enough to push this progress in the last you know couple of decades? Yeah, I mean, there's totally been a shift, right? Like the, the largest sector as far as growing jobs is healthcare and service jobs, right? So, and we know that these are majority, you know, di- women of color. Um, it's not the white guys in hard hats. 
So there has been a shift. That is the working class. When someone like me refers to the working class, we're referring to all of those people, not just, you know, sort of I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm not just referring to, you know, retired steel workers, for example, um, like white guys here. Um, but that said, you know, it's not just a demographic story. So, you know, when you have this left leaning project that we've been building in the labor movement for the past few years, especially, you know, you can have shifts even among traditionally kind of white guy unions. So, you know, the one of the most sort of forward thinking out there in front of left wing demands unions is the painters union, which is part of the building trades, you know, the the white guys and hard hat construction workers. And they have been very active in supporting Black Lives Matter, pushing for the PRO Act, a labor law reform bill, so on and so forth. So, you know, I think it's worth reiterating that, you know, even the white guys and hard hats, if they're pushed, they can also, you know, back these these progressive and anti-racist demands. And that's important to keep in mind because it means that, you know, you aren't just waiting for a demographic shift, but you have to do organizing to get there, you know. A funny thing happens when you're taught about uh, militancy within a union. Solidarity is a real thing. And that might even be solidarity with people that like don't look like you and sound like you and weren't raised in the same community as you. Exactly. I'm just saying that. <laughs> Alex Press, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really interesting conversation. I would love to continue it. I feel like, <laughs> you know, that people, we talk about labor a lot, on the, but it, the, understanding the, the, like the nuances and the, sure. the, the little details is, is super important because that's kind of where it all lies in the end. Yeah. So, well, thank, thank you, you so much for having me. I'm happy to come back sometime. Awesome. Go check out Alex Press at Jacobin or many places, but uh, she's a staff writer at Jacobin and her piece is on police reform in the FLCO, which has a lot of catching up to do. Great piece. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Miki. We'll be right back with Francesca Fiorentini. We're going to talk about all the stuff that's happening right now. <laughs> Thanks for watching and listening to The Nomiki Show. But remember to click like and subscribe on YouTube and please share on social media. If you're not already a patron, please join us for as low as $5 a month on patreon.com slash The Nomiki Show for early and special content. That investment makes a huge difference. We are not corporate media raking in the dough. It's really you guys that are keeping us going. So please consider being a patron. And to our current patrons, thank you so much. We are incredibly grateful to you. We also now have swag. So check us out on thenomikisha.com to get your mugs, your totes, and your stickers. Francesca Fiorentini with a fresh haircut. Look at know me. Know me gets a know me. I feel like a like a street rapper trying to get like five bucks off you. One time a dude on like off of Bleecker Street came up to me and he was like, he was like, yo, I'm gonna just like spit a rhyme. Whatever your name is, I'm gonna spit a rhyme. I don't know if anyone's ever done that to you, right? Yes, I think I know who this is. <laughs> you know this person. Okay, this was years Maybe ago. And he rhyme. was like, Francesca, Francesca, a uh, nice chest there you got, Francesca. And I was like, oh, buddy. You lost me. Oh, buddy. I, I respect the hustle always, but got to work a little harder. Yes. <laughs> well, to be fair, he's a man. That's where, if, if they're like, like, I think that's why rap was so misogynist in the, in the early days is because they, it was, it's so impulsive and it was like mostly men and they're just sure. like, oh, what comes first? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> bitches and hoes indeed indeed uh shout happy out to all friday. the awesome female rappers out there yes happy friday nomi femme friday specifically femme, femme friday. friday femme friday yeah. love in the hair also congratulations on your engagement oh I thank said you it to person. yes thanks so much so um really important on this note let's let's talk about how 
uh, online disinformation is attacking and targeting women in politics. Are we surprised by this? This is a New York Times breaking news. Women in politics are getting harassed more than men. The fact that these stories even have to come out, um, but the the reality is, is they have, I'm glad that they've been like looking into a little bit more, uh, fake news and real threats, how online abuse holds back women in politics. Um, Yeah. And this is like, you know, this is simultaneously happening while, while, while there are these like fake, what are they called? Where they're, they're, they're videos and you think that they're real of the person saying things and doing things. And it's not, what is that called? Someone's got the answer for that somewhere. Um, yeah. So this is, I'm not surprised by this. And I'm, I'm partly ex- like frustrated that the New York Times even has to cover this and like make it sound like it's some sort of revelatory, you know, investigation. And if, if it wasn't just like in their normal, uh, uh, reporting, maybe people would be more aware of it, but I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on all of it? Yeah, I mean, what's it's definitely not surprising uh, that there would be more targeted hate towards women who speak out on politics ex- explicitly. Obviously, we know this. We live in under patriarchy. We live in a sexist society. And of course, that expert voices are more often listened to if they're male voices. So women have to claw and work you know, 10 to 20 to 30 times harder, you know, to prove that we're not thinking with our uteruses at all times. Um, but yeah, I think you have to claw to be taken seriously. So of course people try and tear you down. Early YouTube and continued to be YouTube is like this. It's like, why aren't you in the kitchen making me a sandwich? And you're like, um, because your mom does that in where you live, you know, like that's, so it's, it's not new. I think the interesting part, and I haven't read this full article, but is how dark it gets and how so much of the misinformation and the sort of shadowy, um, like the online message boards, whether it's 4chan, 8chan, that eventually egged on and led to things like mass murders, to things like the QAnon conspiracy theory. A lot of that has its roots in the Gamergate, um, you know, f- misogynistic attacks against female gamers, right? And anyone who would dare critique the gaming industry for being misogynist. So that I think, and those women were yet, were blowing the whistle on this stuff years before Trump got elected. And then Trump gets elected. And especially for women online, they're like, oh, we're not surprised by that at all. This stuff has been festering misogyny, pickup artistry, to like white supremacy, Holocaust denialism, like all this stuff has been festering. This is just a different tab on people's windows. I love how you say that, a different tab on people's windows, but it's it's not like accidental. It's also intentional. There, there are people who have vested interests in keeping these spaces operating within these, they realize that that the, the the communities of Gamergate, the the core community of Gamergate, is a great business model to be grown upon into an algorithm. And oh oh, suddenly it's a political movement, and so it's a base for a political movement. And then you see all across the world the roots of so much of the far right and so much of of how. Um, the misinformation is spread through, you know, the the, the algorithm fixes or um, or just straight up like ad buys targeted certain people. It is rooted in in these folks, and you know we talked about we've talked about this before on the show. We've talked about it offline. I think what concerns me the most, other than just the fact that like the online space is 
egregiously worse than like watching Fox News. And I, I don't think people really have processed that yet. Like when the top 10 shows on Facebook are three right wing guys and the audiences are majority male, you know, at least Fox News has like a woman's show. <laughs> and at least they have like half of an audience of women. But they have to name it as like outnumbered. This is scary. <laughs> Exactly. It's scary to be surrounded by women. You're right. At least they're naming that. Like men get scared when women yeah. talk politics. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, I'm not holding that as the model, but like it, that in our minds is bad. This is way worse. This is a, this is, this is a, uh, a patriarchy. It's the dream of the patriarchy. Um, and so I, I say this because there are folks who understand that the, the future of Republican of the Republican Party and simultaneously parts of the Democratic Party are beholden to this root demographic, these crazies. When you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's just a prop for the cuckoo right wing, let's say Matt Gates, right? The Matt Gates right wing is holding the Republican Party hostage. And then you have Kirsten Cinema obsessed with the idea of bipartisanship. Kirsten Cinema, you're partnering with Mechates, which is essentially partnering with QAnon, which is essentially partnering with these Gamergate people. That's a slippery slope here, but bottom line is Steve Bannon helped facilitate so much of this with Donald Trump and globally based on this misogyny. And, you know, the new George Bush is now partnering with Steve Bannon's Donald Trump to get elected. So totally. it's not as slippery as we think it is, right? I don't yeah, and I think what's scary is that when, you know, it's again, up. New York Times runs an article like this and they're like surprised rather than going to the source of like, this is cultivated. This is, you know, there there are confirmed attacks and the same right wing elements that took down Emily Wilder for her previous activism around Palestine are the same elements that are, yeah, trying to create fake nudes about whomever else, you know? And it's like, th th this was known. And if you, if you need any more proof, look at Megyn Kelly getting torn apart by, you know, Trump's trolls you know, and then still not learning her lesson, which was, Mwah, that was just the most beautiful part of that entire story of being like, no, 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 it's not a right wing thing. No, honey, it is a right wing thing. And I think for progressives to try and not, you know, try and look, I know we like to, we hate bad faith identity politics. I'm with that. But I also think it's important to say, hey, we're all piling on Joanne Reed here. I know, I, you know, Joanne Reed dunks on Bernie for no reason. We have our critiques, but why are we focusing on the one black woman on MSNBC? Maybe we should like look at that. Or why are we, you know, there's some left-wing grifters who like decide to like go after, you know, a female journalist, you know, whatever, like, like let's not do that. Let's not like pile on um, and use our like, our like we hate libs politics to cover for us. Well, simultaneously, you know, there are definitely libs who use identity to buffer away from other folks. And and I, I've had my fights with Joanne Reed where she's spread extraordinary misinformation falsehoods. So uh, in ways that other people at MSNBC did not, like, for instance, that the Bernie people on the Unity Reform Commission were trying to eliminate um, Iowa caucuses because they wanted to eliminate black people. Or what about the hand gestures? Remember oh, that? Yeah. It's oh, yeah. a misogynist. Yeah. I'm sorry. I know. Yes, Joanne is <laughs> Reed is particularly annoying. But you know what I'm saying. Like I know the, what you're saying. I'm the, just we can't necessarily completely separate these things. Um, 
But yeah, be conscious of them. I mean, it's not conscious. like that. That's that's ultimately it. It's like when you have a Congress full of Democrats, many Democrats who are constantly voting with the military budget and are uh, going on APAC tours and are uh, supporting statehood of Puerto Rico, and yet still get called progressives. I saw uh, one of the Dayan brothers post you know, Ruben Gallego should run for, for Congress. We need a good progressive to run for Congress against Kirsten Cinema, Ruben Gallego. And I'm like, good progressive. The guy just went on an, a I mean, he's like on the APAC tour. Where, where, but, but no, but, but the, the, the thing is, is that the progressives who love to target AOC and Ayanna Presley and Cory Bush for not being pure enough. Meanwhile, you've got somebody in the actual progressive caucus who is, 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 is taking APAC money and, and, and aligning with the right wing of Puerto Rico and many other issues. Um, being on the the committee that has to do with um, the status of, of Puerto Rico, and there's much more. But you know, why don't we target those people? Those people are are actually going to be moved by progressive politics because they're moved so much that they're trying to pretend to be progressives while taking the money from the centrist and the more conservative interests because, like, that's their only way. Yeah. Also, not to mention Nancy Pelosi, super sexist and like low key, like. It is not lost on anyone that when she attacks the squad, it's like mostly women of color. She's definitely scaled that back. But like we were right to point that out in the moment. Like so again, watch, you know, some of these critiques of, of course, bad faith identity politics can often align with some of those centrist liberals who are like, ah, these young women of color have no idea what they're talking about. They're new. They're activists. I know. And you're like, do you know what I mean? Like they, she absolutely participated in that. Well, listen, she knows a lot more because she spent a good chunk of her life raising money. And if there's anything that helps you understand movement politics and working people, it's raising money in San Francisco. <laughs> and pack heights with exactly. your, in your particular block. Yes, literally, that's it. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I want to move to the future because thank God there are people who are younger than us who are just continuing the fight that we've all been fighting forever anyways. Um, there's, there's nobody younger than us, no, Miki. I just want to just put that out there. Okay. There's no nobody younger than us. Okay. I'll take that. <laughs> I actually think I'm older than you. I'm, listen, I, I am embracing my age as I get older. I feel like as I've gotten, when I was when I was in my 20s, I don't know about you, I was like, I'm not going to smoke pot. I'm not drinking. I'm, and I'm like, can I do mushrooms and do my show? Now, <laughs> who's yelling at me for doing that? Uh, I thought something was weird about you on Tuesday. <laughs> Dorsey's like, LOL, 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 LOL. <laughs> I've been talking about mushrooms a lot lately. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, You've been talking to Joshua Con Russell. I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know the jammer. <laughs> if you guys could only see the chat it would be great um all right so let's talk about this valedictorian speech because this is this has been making the rounds did you share this too i feel like we all shared it the community of like progressive feminists were just like yeah absolutely i mean look just because hillary clinton shared it doesn't mean i can't also share it it was incredible like objectively so yes of course gonna share this woman's speech let's play the speech for the boys who have not seen it i have dreams and hopes and ambitions every girl graduating today does. 
and we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights. A war on the rights of your mothers. A war on the rights of your sisters. A war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Mm. Okay. Love it. But yeah, Hillary Clinton did did, did share it. So is this like the new... <laughs> no. She's like she... She's Look, talking a... about abortion. We can't talk about anything else. A broken <laughs> clock, right? No, it's it's good. And, and this... Look, this speech could have been given in the 70s. That's what was yeah. most striking. And she kind of has like a throwback appeal. She's got like the long hair and, you know, and she's so um, she's just so incredibly articulate and moving. And like she's got kind of this drawl that I'm like, when was this? Was this from the 70s? Because it's literally the same effing fight all the time. And, and yet a couple things really stood out to me when she named if my contraceptives fail. Right. Now, I feel like that is very different. You wouldn't hear a young 17-year-old speaking about being sexually active in the 70s and talking about her contraceptive failing. And it's like, no, 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 well, let's talk about it because many teens are sexually active and absolutely a fear of going into college and feeling like you could be, you could be raped or that you could, yes, get pregnant. All, that is incredible claiming of your own sovereignty, of your autonomy, of your humanity. And I think that, that you know, look, there are people in the comments, there's a lot of men in the comments who want to be like, but at what, what stage should abortion be illegal? Not relevant, homie. Not relevant. The only relevant thing is, are women second-class citizens and do they have control of their own bodies? That's the only relevant discussion. And if your answer to both of those things is yes then the answer to the arrest of your question doesn't matter. It's if this, if this mother wants this, if this person wants to be a mother, is the fetus viable? Will they get sick if they continue to bring this, 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 uh, a, a life into this world, right? I've been to El Salvador. They have criminalized abortion. They have criminalized it to the point where miscarriages are right. being labeled as abortion. And you got women serving 30-year sentences. Right. You've got women who've just suffered a miscarriage shackled to their beds in hospitals. That is the slippery slope of yes. what happens when you say that, yeah, no, we should create some sort of arbitrary rule of when a life is a life, because then the woman's body becomes completely secondary to it. And this is happening, of course, um, in the wake of Texas uh, Governor Abbott signing into law six weeks most women don't even know that they're pregnant after six weeks. Let's just be really clear um, that six week after six weeks, you cannot, uh, you, 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 I mean, Planned Parenthood's out of, of, of Texas. We remember when that fight happened. 
this is, um, I just want to make it really clear though, because tying it to the political, like if we want to loop in the boys who don't understand this in the deepest way in terms of self-sovereignty and, and body sovereignty or anybody who doesn't, um, let's tie it to the Democratic Party because I had this, this little thing that went viral like four or three years ago or something uh, when I was in the Unity Reform Commission. And I said something like, when all of the money of the Democratic Party is moved towards five consultants and not towards state parties, we lose state legislatures. That's how we lost 1,200 seats. And when you lose 1,200 seats in states like Arizona, which now we know is blue, but I worked in Arizona in 2006 and it turned blue. And then we lost a governor and then we lost the legislature. And then what do we lose? Oh, right. So if you have a an ectopic pregnancy, you can't deal with that in Arizona anymore. You got to go to New Mexico, which is, you know, depending on where you are in the state, it's four, five, six hours away, maybe more, uh, if you have the money and the ability to do so. So this is the world that we're creating now when we don't invest in politics has repercussions. And is somebody's fifth home in Barbados, some consultants effing fifth home worth this? And so what she was doing, she's highlighting this in the wake of the Texas legislature and governor, you know, completely like, like, like this is, this is, this Well, I, I hope it goes to the Supreme Court. Who knows what's, I mean, if it goes to the Supreme Court. Gee, I wonder what's going to happen, Francesca. No, but I mean, this is you bringing up the Democratic Party is really important in terms of political strategy and in terms of the fact that up until a few years ago, Pelosi was openly saying that, yes, you can be pro-life and a Democrat. And it's like or anti-choice. Let's not get it twisted. Let's be in the 21st century with our language. It is anti-choice and still be a Democrat. And the answer is no. The answer should be no. And and like so, look, it is incredible bravery for this woman in Texas to speak out about this. It gives me hope because I know that Gen Z, this will be a battle cry and it won't be like the 70s, which was, yes, predominantly white, predominantly middle class, upper class. This will be a multiracial, a justice oriented. You got young kids who've been politicized by Black Lives Matter. They understand maternal uh, black health rates in terms of uh, um mortality rates and how black mothers are treated differently uh, when it comes to either contraception, family planning or birthing itself, that is not lost on them. But what you just said about ectopic pregnancies, let's let's be clear. That is when a, a, a fetus starts growing in your fallopian tubes. You can die suddenly because of that. And so if you have to drive four or five exactly. hours to go to somewhere that will treat you, that's the difference between your life or your death. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and, and just to, to piggyback on you for a little, a little bit, this issue of reproductive rights, I think the difference between the 70s era fight for ERA and, and reproductive rights, the difference here is that when you include more working class voices who are <laughs> undeniably more diverse, and some come from immigrant backgrounds, some are, are here undocumented, many are people of color, women of color, um, and, and of course, we're talking about all women in, in many ways. When you include this, when you have this conversation around reproductive rights and just body sovereignty, I think, just to expand it a little bit more, it becomes a class issue. And that is something I think that the Hillary Clinton generation um, was in some ways allergic to, some ways just completely blind to. And there's the difference here. And I think this is what's going to make this a more winning strategy. So you have to include 
it has to be not just inter intersectional in, this, in, in the fact that you're, it's racial justice and economic justice tied to reproductive rights and, and, and body uh, sovereignty and body rights, but also the political strategy, because this is also how you're going to bring in people who are outside of the, the, the women's movement collective, is understanding that this is tied to a larger political movement. It's why when we look at Kirsten Sinema and we look at Joe Manchin, we should be listing off all of the legislation that they're blocking, that normie Democrats are like, wait, what? They're, they're blocking the really normie bill on blah, 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 that's not happening. Just like when we fought the IDC, we attached all the IDC members to the normie bills that most normie Democrats would be like, wait, why is, is Roe v. Weed not, not codified in New York State? And we're like, oh, well, there are these eight Democrats who've been caucusing with Republicans. Well, there are these two Democrats who've just been holding up everything, including the filibuster, uh, ending the filibuster. So uh, final thoughts, Francesca Fiorentini, friend. Uh, I mean, final thoughts are I think this is going to be a galvanizing issue, sadly. I mean, it makes me really sad that we have to refight these fights, you know, but this is what it's going to take. And it's going to take the squad and I think young progressive women and working class women like Cori Bush, um, like AOC, who worked as a bartender, to lead the way. And the Hillary Clintons and the Pelosi's, like you're saying, need to take a back seat. Um, and it's, and we need to see how these fates are linked, that we that like equality and sort of first wave feminism in an inherently unequal system can only get you so far, can only get you so far. And so our transformation has to be much more radical than that. And I think we're ready for it. I'm, I am a strategic person as well. We're super ready to have a broader discussion of what reproductive rights means, reproductive justice means, and man, healthcare, hello, like, and Medicare for all. I'm about to say hello somebody, because if Nina Turner is in, con I mean, Congress, like, look, I'm, I'm excited for the future. I'm ready for the fight. Awesome. Francesca, what are you working on right now? Oh, dude, just the podcast. Bituation Room podcast every Sunday, 5, 8 Eastern, streaming live. Love, love. Go check it out. Go check out Francesca's uh, YouTube page. It's, of course, the home <laughs> of the Bituation Room on Sundays. I've been on it. Love it. And you had, you had Josh on. Uh, we did. Sunday, we right? had a whole bonus episode. Uh, we had a whole bonus episode on with Josh where we talked about self-care. And that was really wait, important. Wait, I've got my here. Oh, yeah, it's happening. it's oh, it's a ghost. See, look, here's the thing. When you live in a podcast household, everyone has to get a microphone. But when all the microphones are in the podcast room. I love it. No, he it's says, all cool. sorry. This is, it's my betrothed. No. My I know I wanted him to join, but it's you know, and it's been Friday. He's not allowed on. <laughs> he should. Next he's not on he today, join. but he should be on. He's a he's a hoot. Yeah, we um, come on together. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, guys, listen to that episode. Uh, obviously, join Nomiki's Patreon, but also join mine, you know. And uh, we had a great discussion with Joshua for an hour about how the way the movement breaks you and makes you like hate yourself and others and then how you have to like reconstitute yourself. So as left really easy, you just drink a bottle of wine. <laughs> Here's the cliff notes. No? Cliff notes, according to Nomiki, psychedelics, bottle of wine, <laughs> lots of kombucha. I'm so there with you. You know me so well, Francesca. Also, two hours of yoga a day, at least 20 minutes of meditating. I'm not two like, hours. yeah, I mean, it's like, I'm, yeah, I'm a little classic when it comes to that. You do yoga too. You get it. Yeah, but after an hour, I'm like, I'm going to check Instagram now. <laughs> No, no, no. Because I feel like after an hour, then that's when you get into the space and you're like, all right, all right. It's like getting there, getting yeah. to the mat is the hardest part. So I have to do it first thing in the morning. 
if I don't do it first thing in the morning and if I have a cup of coffee, then I will never get to my yoga and I will never. And then I'll just start drinking wine at 11 in the morning. <laughs> no? uh, this this sounds like you need to listen to the episode, Nomi, because we've got someone who's uh, sober who's and it's like, yeah, what's that life about? Just uh, I'm Greek. This is not like I'm making you're it like, sound like it's I'm normal. 11 a.m. wine bottles. OK, you're lucky I'm not grabbing vodka. All right. I'm just kidding, guys. I'm totally kidding. As I'm drinking my water. <laughs> French. <laughs> oh, my God. I love Fridays here. <laughs> I love Fridays. Francesca, you're the best. See you soon. Likewise. Maybe in See person. You. Hopefully. Yes. Thanks for joining. Ciao. Take care. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am very excited and honored to have Sumeya Awad join us today. She is the co-editor of Palestine, a socialist introduction from Haymarket Books, and she's director of strategy at the Dala Justice Center. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really just uh, very grateful to you. And, and just so you know, you're on mute. There Thanks you. so much for having me. It's really great to be back. So this is a, um, what day are we on now? Day 11, 12? of 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 the continue well there's a ceasefire but let's let's start with that what is what does a ceasefire look like what, what's the reality that how did it how did it happen behind the scenes as far as you know well i mean the first thing to say is that this ceasefire just means that israel stopped its carpet bombing of uh gaza, of gaza it doesn't mean that it's stopped its blockade on gaza it doesn't mean that it stopped the police brutality we're seeing right now in jerusalem happened just today despite the ceasefire Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean that it's uh, ended its occupation of any of the Palestinian cities and towns and villages that is uh, continuing to occupy or that it's ceased its control of Palestinian people or its oppression. So it's actually a very, very 
small um, win in the grand scheme of things, which is that it's just not bombing uh, Palestinian families um, every day, nonstop, day and night. Um, so that's the first thing. I think that the reason the ceasefire happened is because of actually the resistance that Palestinians put up. The fact that there were protests across Palestine, across occupied Palestine, which hasn't actually happened in decades, where in Gaza, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, um, in 48, occupied Palestinian cities in Israel rose up together with a unified call um, saying we demand the end to the settler colonial project. We demand our freedom, our liberation from the river, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, which is all of Palestine, mm-hmm. which is what Israel colonized in 1948 and is continuing to colonize today. So I think it's their resistance that pressured Israel. I think it's the protests we saw here in the U.S. across the country where hundreds of thousands of people rose up. And I think all of this also pressured Congress to act. So the the uh, resolution that was brought to the House by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashid Tlaib, and Mark Pocan saying, we want to stop this latest arms deal, this $735 million in weapons to Israel. We want to stop that. And Bernie Sanders just yesterday um, introduced a company uh, with a motion that was brought to the Senate floor and that now the Senate has to vote on. I think all of this was pressure on Israel to to agree to a ceasefire, um, and 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 of course Netanyahu has been exacerbated. He he's worried about his own political situation. Um, so there are these political forces that we've talked a lot about on the show in terms of the dynamics that have led to this recent uh, set of attacks. That you know, to any sane person, seems out of he seems out of his mind. He, you know, the fact that this sophisticated military that has advanced weaponry that can, you know, knows exactly who they're targeting, uh, thinks it's totally fine to, it's not fine to, to bomb anybody, let's just be very clear, but in, in the political context, it's fine to bomb journalists because, you know, it's, the, the arguments are, are, they're not being, the, the, the old stale arguments are not being bought by the general public and the political community now, but it seems as if he's only pushing that far, not because he's completely out of touch, but because his own situation in his own country is so uh, is so tenuous. Do you think that Netanyahu will get through this, and 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 that this situation um, with the ceasefire was it a band aid? Is it is he just going to kind of uh, weather this crisis and continue on? But but scale back a little bit. I mean, did you see what I'm saying here? Like, yeah. is this a tipping point, or is it really just like they're gonna they're gonna do whatever they can to get through, um, and then continue on? So I think it was definitely a defeat for Netanyahu, um, and uh, that's why people like Israelis, Jewish Israelis, are frustrated and are angry because this was a defeat, and it's happening at a time where right now in Israel the the Israeli population is increasingly right wing. And that's really saying something, right? Because it's a settler colonial state. So, you know, the settlers are right wing because of the nature of of what they're doing there. The fact that they're on this colonized land and uh, participating in this colonization project, but they're increasingly right wing and unabashedly so. So there is no left in Israel anymore. It's Mm -hmm. it's so small, whatever anti-Zionist formations exist that they don't actually have any power or any sway. And I think what that means is Netanyahu has been trying to figure out how to respond and keep this right wing happy. And that's part of the reason why he uh, bombed Gaza. Part of the reason why the police brutality we're seeing in Jerusalem, uh, in Haifa, in Lid, and in the occupied West Bank has has really increased. The fact, like you were saying, they're shooting journalists, like point blank. They're shooting j- journalists on TV, like, you know, the journalist is recording as they're being shot. Um, or in Gaza, that they uh, shot down or they bombed this media tower, um, that they bombed roads leading to hospitals. 
Um, I think it all shows this crisis that's actually unfolding in Israel. Um, and what Netanyahu is going to do and Benny Gantz, his, his rival, although they both agreed about the bombing in, in Gaza, I actually think that we, we're, we're going to have to see what happens because they have one of two choices. One is that internally it's going to fall apart, Israeli society is going to fall apart and it's going to um, allow for this opening of Palestinian resistance and unified Palestinian mm. resistance, but that will come at a cost. Already 200 people have died in Gaza. Already um, a 17 year old was shot and killed during protests in Umm al-Fahim. Um, 17 years old, shot in the head. So they knew what they were doing. Um, so I think I think uh, it's going to become more right wing and Palestinians are going to pay a price, but it also means that there's going to be uh, renewed resistance. Um, and I think there's this uh, awakening that's happening where these Palestinian youth are really leading the charge. It's not connected to the Palestinian Authority, to the PLO. It's not connected to any particular political party or so-called Palestinian leadership. It's actually just Palestinians on the ground. And then, of course, in the diaspora, organizing and, and pushing uh, for our liberation. Um, staying on politics for a second, uh, what is the dynamic right now between um, the PLO and the people of Palestine? I mean, there's the the, the, the talking points, uh, the, the <laughs> we, we know that there's there's a heavy uh, leaning towards, you know, the, the propaganda that's coming out. Um, so let's just, just let's 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 like give people tools. What what is really going on? What is, you know, are the Palestinian people uh, in what, what are the political dynamics internally, I guess, is 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 the best question to dismantle the talking points. So I think there's actually no trust in the Palestinian Authority right now um, by Palestinians, or at least the majority of Palestinians. There's definitely, uh, the Palestinian Authority does not have a popular mandate in any way, shape or form. And that's actually part of the reason that they canceled the elections that were supposed to happen in May. Um, that were supposed to happen around now, actually, that were canceled. It's because they know they wouldn't win, uh, mm. that the, the parties in place, Fatah, would not win. Um, and it's because they're so corrupt. Um, they take a lot of the, the funding that comes in. You know, there's this whole NGO complex that is just disastrous and has been disastrous for the majority of Palestinians who are workers, who are refugees in Palestine. Um, and they also coordinate and cooperate with Israeli security agencies to detain Palestinians, um, uh, surveillance, um, and otherwise. And that's why in Sheikh Jarrah, which was sort of the center of what triggered what we've seen in the last two weeks, when um, a, a member of the PA was going to come visit, um, a sort of like a, a political figure, mm -hmm. the, the community in Sheikh Jarrah said, we don't want anyone that cooperates with the Israeli security to visit us. Um, and they actually released a statement about that. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, this is really, really important because it's, it's this new chapter in Palestinian resistance. And as the, the strike that was organized on Tuesday this week, um, the, the, the unity intifada is what it was called, um, where over 2 million Palestinians uh, participated um, in their manifesto that they released, they specifically said, this is Palestinians on the ground across Palestine rising up together. Um, this is a new awakening. This is a new chapter. We don't want to uh, work with, apologize or justify um, the actions of the so-called Palestinian leadership that have been speaking on our behalf, that are trying to fragment us, that are working with the Israeli occupation. And I think this is, uh, this is a really, really, really important shift. Um, and I think really does signify that we're in a new moment. That's incredible. Um, okay, so so right now, uh, people have seen the maps of of how much of 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 Palestine has been taken over by Israel over the last uh, seventy or so years. Um, how much has happened in the last since Netanyahu has been in power? Since Netanyahu has been in power, settlement expansion in the West Bank um, has gone up by several tens of thousands, mm -hmm. um, and so have 
so has the the uh, the brutality against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Um, in terms of um, um, the number of people dying, the the olive groves set on fire, the fact that settlers are emboldened to do whatever they want, knowing there are no consequences, knowing no one will really be held accountable, um, and things will just stall in these um, hollow, um, uh, you know, fake investigations. In some ways, like what happens in the U.S. sometimes um, after a, a police. Uh, officer uh, murders a, a black or a brown uh, person in this country. There's these investigations that go on and on. Um, so it's it's similar to that. And then, of course, in um, in Israel, Palestinian citizens of Israel continue to be um, forced into uh, second class citizenship. You know, they don't have any rights. And I think all of this has actually been entrenched. And the blockade on Gaza has been entrenched. Um, Netanyahu has been in power for the majority of the time that the blockade has been on Gaza. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence, but it's also important to note that Netanyahu is not an anomaly, that this has actually been what Israel's uh, state project has been for 73 plus years. It's been 73 years of Israel trying to erase Palestinians, uh, literally to just wipe them off that map that we see floating around everywhere now on Twitter. Um, they're not trying to have them assimilate, not at all. They're not trying to have them adapt. They're not trying to just bring them in. They're actually just trying to erase the Palestinian identity. Um, and of course, the U.S. is complicit in all of this because of the funding um, that it gives Israel, because of the Israel lobby in the U.S. and the power of that, because of the arms industry that the U.S. Uh, profits from. Um, and that's why the shifts right now we're seeing in the media where Palestinians are able to talk um, in their own voice about yeah. what's happening to them is actually pretty huge. Um, whereas before, anytime you mentioned Palestine or Palestinians, you had to qualify it. You couldn't oh just God. talk about it openly. And before, when we say before, I mean, this is like a year ago, not even a year ago, it was... It was it's incredible to see this shift. It's incredible um, to see, you know, Rashida Tlaib in Congress speaking personally about her experience, her family's experience. So we have an opportunity right now to to talk to a left audience about what it's like to live in Gaza. Can you explain sort of the conditions um, in this situation, like as 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 the bombs were coming in? But also, I mean, we've I've seen stories, friends who have had personal stories where their family members have traded kids in their households to, to protect the line of, I mean, so during these conditions, the last, you know, 11 days, what, what have people had to go through? Where, is there any place safe to go? What are some of the, the stories that you're hearing? So the first thing I'll say is, um, you know, for anyone listening, there are so many people in Gaza that have been reporting from the ground on Twitter about their daily life experiences. And one person to follow that I think can link to a lot of these people, his name is Jihad Abu Salim. Look him up, follow him. Um, but some of the stories that were coming out of Gaza, the first thing is that uh, Israel was was uh, bombing blindly insofar as there was no actual target. Anywhere was a target. Um, and this is a state, this is you know one of the strongest um, uh, uh, tech, they're very equipped technologically. They can do precision strikes if they wanted to. Instead, they're shooting all these, or they're bombing all these residential buildings, carpet bombing is what you call it, because they just level entire neighborhoods, entire neighborhoods gone. Um, roads to hospitals, um, killing doctors, um, killing men and women and children. I think this is also important to mention. It's not women, just just children and women that are being killed and that we should be shocked and horrified by, but also the men that are killed. There's this uh, Islamophobia that goes around that, you know, it's it's more, it's it's less okay if it's a woman or a child, but it's more okay if it's a man. 
Um, and I think this is part of feeding into this narrative of what is Hamas and Hamas is everywhere in Gaza and that that's why it's sometimes okay to bomb certain buildings and not others as opposed to no, we should be against all the bombing that's happening in Gaza because Gaza is under blockade. It's under occupation. Yeah. It's a settler colonial project. And any talk of resistance that Palestinians put up um, no matter if we agree with it strategically, any of the resistance they put up has to be understood in the context of occupation. If someone comes to your home um, and takes it over and then brings some random family member from across the ocean and says, hey, this is our home now, you're going to resist. Of course you're going to resist. Um, we're human beings. We, we have the right to resist when our freedom is taken away from us. And it's, it's the only organic and natural thing to do is to resist. And that's what people are doing. Um, in terms of the, the things you were mentioning, Namiki, one of the things that was going around was Palestinians tr trading children. And what that means is like a Palestinian um, um, and and like, let's say like me and my brother and me and my sister and we both have kids. I'd, I'd give you two of my kids. You'd give me two of yours so that if I died with my family, at least some of my kids are still alive and vice versa. Um, and also people wrote about how, you know, there's been three major attacks on Gaza before this one, 2009, 2012, and 2014. And in 2014 in particular, it lasted 51 consecutive days. And a lot of people were thinking this was going to be just like that uh, before the mm -hmm. ceasefire was announced. Um, but during the, the first few days of the bombing last week, some people in, in Palestinian Gaza went on Twitter and were writing how there was a 20 uh, minute interval that they said was worse than the last three attacks on Gaza combined. And that's just because the number of bombs, where it was bombing, the types of weapons they're, they're using, we actually still don't know the details about these new weapons that they might be using, new bombs that they might be using. Um, so I think all of this just shows that Israel is, is equipped technologically, um, you know, leading in all of this in, in, in the world. And in Gaza, it's Palestinians trying to survive and trying to resist um, this ongoing occupation for 73 years. And just to be clear, if you live in Gaza and you're Palestinian, you have nowhere to go. You have nowhere, nowhere to go. go. Nowhere to go. Um, how about the conditions in terms of just outside of, of, of when uh, Israel is attacking? What is it like, you know, in terms of water supply? What is it like to be able to move around? I mean, just what is it? How, do, how does someone survive in Gaza on a day to day basis? I mean, that's that's the thing. It's that's the question is like, how long can can Palestinians survive like this when um, imports and exports are severely restricted? Um, really uh, random things are put on lists uh, that on blacklists. Israel says these can't be imported in. So, for example, in 2014, when the bombings happened, when when, when Israel um, led this 51 day assault on Gaza, um, uh, a large percentage of Gaza's infrastructure was completely um, uh, dismantled, completely ruined. I mean, just raised to the ground. And the construction supplies that you need to rebuild that, Israel wouldn't allow them in because they said they're going to be used to make bombs. Um, and so it's like you level this entire um, area of land where 2 million Palestinians are living. It's one of the most densely populated places on earth. Um, and then you say, we're not going to give you the material. We're not going to allow you to rebuild it. And we're just going to keep bombing you. Um, every few years. Um, and then, yeah, there, there's the one of the main water um, water uh, sanitation sanitation plants was bombed. Um, so there's very, very little clean drinking water. Um, uh, they rely a lot on the agriculture that exists there. But again, every time there's a bombing campaign and with the lack of water, it means there's very little food um, that they can rely on um, to to um, to survive and, and to I mean, more to survive, just to like go through everyday life. And all the while, any sort of funding that people can send 
um, has to go through all sorts of hoops because the U.S. continues to label a lot of the, the funds raised for Palestinians as support for terrorism. And I think this all goes back to the war on terror rhetoric, uh, the Islamophobia and how Israel and the U.S. use that to justify the, the ongoing oppression of Palestinians. And one thing I'll add, too, is just that what Palestinians have been really clear about in the last few weeks is that, of course, funds are important, especially in Gaza, where um, uh, you know, for hospitals and, and and for other things, you need funds to rebuild that. You need funds for the machines that you that you need for people to survive, et cetera. But also Palestinians are saying, our cause is not a humanitarian cause. Our cause is a political cause. It's about ending occupation. It's about ending settler colonialism. And that means the main ask, especially of people in the United States, is to end US funding for what Israel is doing, to end funding for apartheid, to end funding for, for the oppression that they're facing. Um, and, that's, and that's why, um, that's why this this motion to block the seven hundred thirty five million dollars to Israel um, is really really important, and that's why HR twenty five ninety, the Palestinian Families and Children Act, is also really important because it says you can't use U.S. funds for home demolitions, you can't use U.S. funds for land theft, um, or for the detention of children. It's so basic. It's it's so basic, and it's enraging that this is our starting point. That we have to convince people that Palestinians deserve to live. That they just deserve to live and deserve to keep their homes and not have a settler from Brooklyn move in and tell them, actually, this is my home. You and your grandmother, who's been here for 70 years, need to leave. What's interesting to me, and, and I'm not advocating for this, but I'm thinking in terms of, of, of why, why so cruel, is if they had opened up Gaza just a bit, so so ref if you're bombing and, and you don't have water supply and you're losing land and it's 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 becoming more and more um unlivable i'm sitting here on the island of puerto rico right now and i can tell you this is exactly what's happening here puerto ricans uh every, every day puerto ricans are finding it that it's it's more and more difficult to live here because of austerity because of the crises after crises after crises and yet rich people are coming in you know taking it over but there's I wouldn't go as far to say refugee crisis, but there is, well, there was at one point, but there is a, a diaspora that's growing, um, you know, leaving for opportunity. What I don't understand is if, 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 if their goal is just to take over the territory, why not go that route instead of literally bombing the hell out of, I mean, it, it is cruel. It is absolutely, as people said, it's a genocide. And if you have a goal to take over the land, there are many strategies to get to that goal. I'm not in favor of any of them. Let me make that very clear. But why the genocide route? Well, I think when it comes to Gaza at this point, actually, I think Israel wishes that Gaza just didn't exist. Um, I don't think they even are concerned with taking that land at this point because they have the coast. They have the fertile land. I think what they want is to quite literally just erase, erase it from existence because it, it's a thorn in Israel's um, neck, it's it's or side, whatever that phrase is. Um, whereas with the West Bank, it wants to take it all over. Um, and uh, in Israel, all these occupied Palestinian cities, it wants to just erase the Palestinian identity from them um, and and take it over. And that's why they're expanding all these settlements into the West Bank, and they're growing larger and larger. And that's why this this idea of a two state solution really is an illusion. It's not, yeah. it's not actually what Israel wants, and it's not what Palestinians want because Palestinians want full decolonization. Um, as, as do any colonized people, as do any oppressed people, they want to be fully free. They don't want to be partially free. And they want to be able to self-determine. Um, where do you think this is going to go? And the international community is growing more angry. Biden's feeling the pressure from different angles. Um, Netanyahu is now feeling the pressure. What, 
where do we go from here? Well, I think one of the most important things is that we don't uh, we don't let up, that we don't slow down just because there's a ceasefire and act as though, okay, now we can just stop. Things are back to normal. That back to normal means actually just ongoing occupation. That's what yeah. back to normal is. And we don't want that. And that right now we have this really critical opportunity where more and more people are waking up and seeing what Israel is and seeing it for what it is and tying the Palestinian struggle for freedom to other struggles, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's climate justice, yeah. um, imperialism. You said you're in Puerto Rico right now. Um, AOC's speech in Congress yeah. last week where she tied the bombs falling on Gaza to what she heard growing up in Puerto Rico when she would hear the bombs falling uh, from the US military training drills. Um, I think all of this is opening up so many opportunities and we need to seize them because they're not going to be around for long. And we need to really push for ending full US funding and for states all around the world, but in particular the US, which is the world's largest um, imperial uh, country, to divest from Israel, to stop doing these deals from Israel, uh, to fully divest, um, to call for sanctions, uh, to boycott Israel, because that's the only way we're going to pressure it to end what it's doing. It's not going to end on its own. We've just seen it become more and more right wing. Last question. Um, there's 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 dance a dance that Netanyahu's um, playing with Russia. Is there fear that Russia could provide the resources that the U.S. may um, potentially, you know, if 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 the U.S. divests, that Russia could provide the resources? I mean, you know, all options are on the table. I think that because of the role of the U.S. right now, if we were able to fully uh, defund Israel and, and stop the, this flow of money from the U.S. in particular, that that would reverberate with states all around the world and would pressure even big states like Russia not to do this because it wouldn't be profitable uh, for itself. But I also think that as the resistance grows in Palestine, um, the Palestinian resistance is, con is connected to all of these other revolts happening in the Middle East that sort of ebb and flow. And so it's, it's going to have uh, an effect on Syria, on Jordan, on Lebanon, on Egypt, and here in the US as well on really growing and expanding the left. So I think I think there's there's a lot of different options on the table, but I think what we really need to do is take this moment seriously um, and, and push a lot further than we have in the past um, for sanctions and for, for divestment from Israel. Sumaya Awad, thank you so much. This was such a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being honest and um, open with everything because it's a, a very tough time. And I hope that your family is safe as well and your friends. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. All right. Oh, we have her book. Let's go go check out Samaya's book. Um, it is called, she's the co-editor of Palestine and Socialist Introduction from Haymarket Books. And she's the director of strategy at the Adala Justice Project. Go check out her book. Uh, she writes for Jacobin. Check it out. Yes. At Haymarket. Go buy it at Haymarket. It's Fun Friday. We have a panel here. All right, let's take a really quick break. Um, and we'll be right back with our amazing panel of Hadassir and Julie Rock. A little, a little while, while before, before we went into lockdown, lockdown a, boy a boy in my, my class came up to me and said that his dad told him to stay away from Chinese people. people. After, After I told him that I was Chinese, he backed away from me. Eloise and I wrote a song based on that experience. So this is about him and all the other racist, sexist boys in this world. Before we went into lockdown. <laughs>
I am obsessed with them. <laughs> I have watched that video like 50 times. They can't be real. They cannot be real. They're too good. And they make me hope you have so much hope for society. Um, all right. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Femme Friday. We have Julia Rock. She's a reporter with The Daily Poster. Go check out and subscribe to The Daily Poster. It was created by David Sirota. It's a grassroots, grassroots funded investigative journalism project, uh, journalism project that covers politics, business, and corporate power. I read it every day. And Hadass Thier is joining us. She is the author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics. And she is a regular contributor to Jacobin and a member of DSA Brooklyn. All right, it's Femme Friday. Um, Texas is real effed up. <laughs> okay, you, fight, you missed your first period. You don't want to keep the baby. Oh, well, you got it, no matter what. Uh, let's play this clip of Governor Greg Abbott, just a champion of rights and freedom, freedom, all that kind of freedom. It's on mute, Dorsey. Sound. Hold up one second. Let's try that again. Oops, still can't hear. Got a little glitchy glitch today. The sound. Give me well, just a second. I'm not sure what's going on here. Sorry about that. All good. I mean, do we really even need the sound? We know what he did. He signed the he signed the law. The guy's a fascist. Uh, all right, let's let's start with us. What does this mean? Um, this is the 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 law in uh, Texas around abortion rights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, obviously it's it's outrageous and disgusting and not surprising but um but it, it, it's um it's terrible news for women in texas and it's terrible news um for women around the country because this is part of an overall trend um this is part of the right wanting to overturn roe versus wade um and i think it's also part of a trend of you know the republicans don't have much of a leg to stand on around economic issues right now because stimulus spending is so popular and you know, infrastructure spending is so popular. And I think we're going to just see so much of this, you know, just attacks on women, attack on abortion rights, attacks on trans people. Um, that's where they feel like they have the ability to mobilize their base. Uh, and they're just going for broke right now. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it's, it's disgusting. And we need to, you know, figure out how to, how to fight for it tooth and, you know, fight for abortion rights, full abortion rights, uh, tooth and nail. It's so interesting you say that because, um, you know, if if they hadn't gerrymandered the hell out of, of the country and had and if the Democrats had like, you know, I don't know, maybe invested in states or something and tried to win state legislatures, it may not work. But it's 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 like the perfect storm of we make progress on all these other issues, these economic issues that we're trying to make a case for for, for decades. And suddenly the crises of this moment uh, created an opportunity for Democrats to actually, you know, do a little something. Um, but simultaneously, they're going hard right on these other issues that they've created this perfect storm scenario for. Julia, I mean, when the Republicans are thinking so far into the future and um, it's not looking like we're going to be, you know, Democrats are going to win any and progressives are going to win back these legislatures anytime soon and that that 
redistricting is not going to be, you know, advantageous to us. And we, you know, Democrats might lose the House uh, in the midterms. How do we fight this? And of course, the Supreme Court. How do we fight this while also dealing with, you know, the immediate crisis that we're we're facing? Yeah, no, I mean, I think a huge part of the story definitely is the Supreme Court and this um, <clears throat> hearing on a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade was kind of the impetus for this Texas legislation. And I think it's probably going to kind of bring into focus once again, what Biden can do on the court and um, kind of the issue of Justice Breyer retiring while there is a Democrat in the White House and while Democrats have the Senate. Um, there, there was some news, I think it was last month about Biden kind of setting up a commission to study court packing, but that didn't, that doesn't really, you know, setting up a commission doesn't really suggest any um, action, but I think that really is, you know, that was the big issue during the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. And, and that is kind of what Democrats should be focusing on again, when it comes to the court, it is kind of the only way to um, take back the Supreme Court. Otherwise the conservatives have a really, really long stronghold. Do you think that this is sort of putting Biden in a corner where he's going to actually have to pressure uh, Cinema and Mansion to to end the filibuster? I, I mean, I just I, I there's certain wedge issues that are so strong and with mainstream Democrats that it seems like they they just there's nowhere to hide. Like some, Biden's got to step up, Schumer's got to step up, and it I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 curious to see like what kind of political dynamics you guys think have to play out to be able to get mansion and man cinema to act like Democrats. Do you mean on, on abortion or on the Supreme Court? Or on everything, on everything, on, on all these democratic reforms that need to happen so that, you know, we, we can, these fights the Democrats have been fighting and using as their own wedge issues for 40 years suddenly are at risk. And, you know, people beyond the progressive base and people beyond the progressive centrist base, but really like the centrist Democrats, the normies, uh, are not going to be willing to stand for this, and and they're they're becoming um, awakened. So there's a moment where you know, don't you think they're going to say, Biden, step up. This is your party. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, I think he's certainly getting a lot of uh, pressure from progressives within the party um, to kind of take action on on these reforms, like HR one, that you know won't pass unless um, Democrats eliminate the filibuster. And I think that is you know something they're going to have to turn up the heat on. Um, it does seem like Manchin is, you know, maybe open to something like filibuster reform, but but isn't budging on HR one, which is that um, voting rights reform legislation, which is pretty alarming. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it is going to have to come um, from progressives who are already elected to Congress or kind of from the progressive base outside of Washington. Hadass, do you think that that's that's it? Is it the, is are the progressive base enough? Well, that definitely has to be the starting the starting point because it's actually, you know, the centrist Democrats have been terrible on these issues. It's not just that they're not putting up, they haven't put up enough of a fight. It's that they have been part of rolling back abortion rights and not standing up uh, to all the incremental attacks on abortion rights over the last couple of decades. Um, they've rolled over on it again and again. And so they've really disarmed themselves. And a lot of the kind of liberal wing of the feminist movement has been disarmed along with them. You know, the backtracking on, you know, instead of saying, you know, actually abortion without apologies, free abortion on demand, the kind of things that we saw at the height of the women's rights movement, 
um, you know, it's basically abortion with apologies um, mm. and that, you know, we want to make abortion, uh, what is it, uh, legal, legal and rare, or I can't remember the, 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 the motto, but it's, you know, basically to, to backtrack on the issue, uh, you know, on the morality of the issue or what have you, um, and to try to fight, tinker around the edges to, to maintain, you know, some kind of abortion rights or the facade of abortion rights. Um, and so there's been a real, you know, shift uh, to the right in, in the, in the set, in, you know, in the Democratic Party, in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And so it's going to have to come from the more progressive wing. And I think, you know, the, the good thing for, for the left right now is that Biden is dependent on the progressives in a way that he hasn't been in the past. So things that I never would have expected uh, to be possible are showing to be possibly possible. So, you know, I, I, I think that there, there is possibility there, um, you know, but it has to be organized. I want to shift gears real quick because uh, <laughs> the Republican Party um, is, I wouldn't say in disarray, but beholden to a base of total nutcases. Uh, you know, every form of a denier slash, you know, uh, insurrectionist insider, et cetera. Um, the view it is spent Friday. So this is when we put up our view clips because they're just so enjoyable to assess. <laughs> there was a little bit of a debate between Megan McCain, um, who I think thinks of herself as, as, as the leader of the old school Republican Party, I guess, uh, and Joy Behar, who <laughs> I don't know, is a comedian. Let's play this clip. <laughs> Can I please ask Megan a question? Sure. Can I ask you a question, Megan? Because I'm really, you're right. You know more about what's going on in your party than I do. My my sister-in-law is an advisor to Kevin McCarthy. I have a lot of friends and family who work on Capitol Hill. Like a lot. Hold on. Yeah. So what's the question? I'm not, hold on. My question is, if it's not the Republican Party, shall I call it the QAnon Party? What shall I call your party now? Who defends people like Matt Gates and goes against Liz Cheney? What are we supposed to call it? I think you can call it whatever you Explain want because me, your please. influence in the Republican Party is almost zero. And again, as I've said on this show, it is for us to figure really? out amongst ourselves. What Republican is like, mm, Joy Behar doesn't like my party? Oh, God, I better stop voting for them now. You know I what, mean, really, Megan? In the same hold way, on, I have hold no on. influence on Megan, the left. I don't think at least. Yes, but you often, you often on this show give your opinion of what the Democrats should be doing yes, with themselves said, to better you themselves. Said, but you said that people on Capitol Hill, you said people on Capitol Hill are supporting him. I'm telling you from people that I know personally, they are embarrassed. This is embarrassing for the Republican Party. Okay, then why don't they get rid of him? They should, because why I think, don't they get they him have, off his committee? Because they have to, they have to uh, convict him or whatever. I'm not a lawyer. They have to, what is it? They have to, get, the, the police have to arrest him. I don't know enough about it, but like they have to arrest him and charge him. That's well, why he's still in Congress. They didn't have any problem. They didn't have any problem taking okay, guys, Liz Cheney off her committees gonna, without any further investigation. I'm gonna, Liz Cheney, but that's a different thing. Liz Cheney wasn't on the committee. She was the third-ranking member. And she Suddenly, they need Okay, proof. here's what I'm going to do. Sonny has a legal note that she needs to read trash. right now. Is, so, Sonny, would you do me a favor, please, and read you your legal note? Every single note? day. Every single Can day. I do have a legal note. Oh, All right, God. we're going well, to break. Okay, so this is entertaining, of course, for people who like to watch spectator sports. But... Um, <laughs> But the reality is, is that this, as much as the Republican Party is not our party, uh, we should be concerned that like they can't keep their house in order in some ways because uh, 
you know, with the fact that there might not be a commission about the, the, the fact that they like, lynched the vice president in January and that there, I, I, I started off the show talking about how I was on Fox News and uh, they were having this conversation about, they're, they're, they're like trying to take the COVID fight, right? They don't want the COVID fight to end. Now that COVID, you know, people are getting vaccines. They're now making it about, oh, Big Pharma wants to make money off of vaccines. So don't take the vaccine. They just want to continue this fight to keep their base alive. But the reality is this base is holding us completely hostage as a country, especially when when Kevin McCarthy and, and, and McConnell, you know, are letting it happen. Um, so my question is, what if we created a map of the craziest effing Republicans and just targeted the hell out of them. Are the progressives spending too much time or not enough time taking on these QAnon nutcases? I mean, obviously AOC's had her own little things in Congress with them, but are we not spending enough time focusing on that? Are we too distracted or, or are we, where are we in terms of our ener energy? Um, do we think, that, are, are, we, are we taking them seriously enough? I guess is, is the question at us. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I think it, I think you're right that we need to absolutely take um, the QAnon uh, forces and so on seriously. We need to figure out what our approach is. Um, I would say, you know, I think that the fact that the, at sort of at the top of the Republican Party that they're falling apart uh, is, is is probably a, a positive development, it's a, it's a good thing, because the weaker the Republican Party is, um, the more that it opens up space actually for progressives within the Democratic Party, because you no longer have this like the boogeyman of a strong Republican Party. Um, so you can fight harder within the primaries, etc. Um, I think that the, the Republican Party being a mess uh, and kind of falling in on itself is overall a positive development. But I think that the left needs to you know, not necessarily not address itself to the like hard right and the QAnon folks, but I think needs to address itself to people that have been disaffected by the status quo and that have, you know, um, shifted rightward. I mean, some of the profiles of the people that took play took part in the Capitol Hill um, insurrection that they actually, you know, they they weren't surprise surprise born right wingers. You know, I mean, people who were. Um, union members, people who were organized, I mean, all sorts of folks that have been, you know, really disillusioned, disempowered, um, you know, et cetera, over the last umpteen years. And, oh, and, and, the, and the left has not provided enough of an alternative. Now that's beginning to change. Um, but I think that's sort of what we need to, we need to have like much more aggressive posture about, you know, what our vision is that we're putting forward and what do we put forward as an alternative um, to, um, to those sort of like crazy right-wing conspiracy theories. The, the bolder our vision and the more clarity that we have on our side, the more it disarms, um, you know, the, the appeal of the, the you know, right-wing uh, conspiracy theories. Can you unbrainwash them though? After, after after they've gone down that rabbit hole, and Julia and also neither one can you, you can jump in. 
I mean, yeah, I would agree with all, all of the points that Hadas just made and kind of circle back to something um, that I think you said earlier on about Biden's stimulus being really, you know, the American Rescue Plan stimulus being really popular. And I just think that like from a governing perspective, um, Biden, you know, and, and the Democrats really have an opportunity to be passing policies that are really popular to the types of people um, who also might be kind of getting washed up in these theories. So, you know, I don't really know anything about kind of talking people out of a conspiracy theory, but I think that in terms of like building a base of popular support and kind of uh, achieving the ultimate goal of, you know, defeating the Republican Party, um, that policies, you know, that put cash in people's pockets and lift people out of poverty, you know, that's what is going to build a broader base of support among um, the Democrats and kind of pull people away from those, you know, compelling uh, uh, conspiracy theories that kind of explain, you know, what has gone wrong in in politics and in the world. Great, yeah, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Adasa. No, and I, and I was just going to say, I, I agree with that, all that, and I would just add to, you know, on, around a lot of these issues, you know, there's like people that are super hardened and like, yeah, it's hard to imagine exactly how that would unravel, but there's a lot of people in between, you know, there's a lot of, you know, anti-vax sentiment is not the just on the right, you know, I mean, it's there's a lot of skepticism and there's a lot of um, fear and there's a lot of, uh, you know, understandable uh, skepticism, obviously, of the pharmaceutical industry, but also the role of the government and health concerns and around, you know, the, the history of what this government has done um, in relation to um, people of color, um, African-American people, you know, all all of those things like we need to push for really widespread education campaigns that should be coming through community organizations and schools and churches, et cetera. Like we need to um, be pushing for uh, really like a, an, an aggressive and um, um, approach that doesn't just write people off, um, you know, but actually tries to win over uh, people to, around these kinds of positions. It's a really great pivot because I, I just want to end on one thing. Um, my favorite person to take on is Joe Rogan because he has the largest podcast in the world and he uh, got a <laughs> several hundreds of millions of dollars to put this podcast on by Spotify. So it is not a small podcast. He may not call himself a journalist. He may say it's his opinions, but he has a huge, uh, he, his platform is so influential. And, and I think, um, you know, before we show the story that, that, that he, that he's always in the news for saying something provocative, obviously, but, but around the vaccine, so I mean, that's, that's a perfect example. If Joe Rogan, maybe he's being influenced by someone that I'm not aware of, but if he were to be, I don't know, lobbied by folks in the science and <laughs> if, if, if Dr. Fauci had maybe like called him up or somebody else who, who has more information and really worked with him or even went on the show to talk him through, uh, some of his beliefs surrounding um, started with masks when he was, you know, he had Elon Musk on and they didn't really trust that COVID, had, COVID was a real thing uh, and that masks worked. And now it's, it's about the vaccine. But, you know, this is problematic because on one hand, there is this, this in-between space. I don't know what they are. They're, they're, maybe they're libertarian, maybe they're not, where they're pulling people from the left in and maybe sucking them in as a, it's like a pipeline to the conspiracy theorists. I don't know how many people end up there. But at the same time, the government could be doing a much better job of, of pressuring pharmaceutical companies to maybe put their money into research and development instead of you know stock buybacks, but also 
getting the message out, like you said, to, to communities that should not and, and have rightful reason not to trust the government because of what they've been doing. Um, but also, you know, these folks. So let's let's just show this uh, Joe Rogan, because there's also the. the... <laughs> you can never be woke enough. That's the problem. It keeps going. It keeps right. going further and further and further down the line. And if you get to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands, it will eventually get to straight white men are not allowed to talk. Right. Because it's your privilege to express yourself when other people of color have been silenced throughout history. It, it will be you're not allowed to go outside because so many people were imprisoned for so many years. I mean, I'm not joking. No, I, I know. I know. So we do this show on Fridays because the majority of the left political YouTube, and I don't even know what the right is, is male. When I say male, I mean like 80 percent, 80, 90 percent. So we want to have these conversations and this is our most popular show, um, which is awesome. But so that we can have these conversations because that is the norm. Like, let's just put this out. Fox News, which has, we have a lot of reasons to criticize. Fox News at least has female hosts and they at least have a split audience. But these spaces now do not. They are overwhelmingly male dominated. They're overwhelmingly male hosted, watched, and they're shifting the conversation into the mainstream. So, you know, Julia, you know, what, what I love about the Daily Post is you guys do cover big tech and you do talk about these issues. Are we, where are we? And I mean, I know there have been hearings about taking on uh, big tech in terms of, of, of their power, but are we having enough of the conversation around just the insurrection obviously is one example and QAnon is one example, but even just equity and, and who's, who's watching, who's shifting the conversations, who's on air, who's making the money. Um, there was the woman who was, who was hired by Google to address the algorithm and then was fired as soon as she said it's racist and it's sexist. Julie, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, they're kind of the, <clears throat> some of the problems you're describing in media right now, and then, and then some of the problems, you know, about kind of big tech consolidation. Um, I think it's, you know, it's been really interesting and kind of disheartening week in media for thinking about this type of thing. You know, there was the example of um, Chris Cuomo partaking in really blatantly unethical behavior and kind of not not being reprimanded. And then a really young journalist at the Associated Press um, losing her job for being affiliated and organizing with students for justice in Palestine um, as a college student. And I think, you know, those those kind of inequities that take place along gender and race lines and kind of specifically around the issue of Israel and Palestine um, are, are kind of massive problems for media and definitely what we're hoping to kind of fight against at the Daily Poster um, being, you know, funded by readers and subscribers and kind of holding ourselves to standards that aren't, aren't simply, you know, present both sides of every issue as the same. Um, I think it definitely is related to a, the issue you're talking about of, of consolidation um, in the tech industry as well. But I, I kind of do think that that the way to fight back is just to be building better institutions um, and to be, you know, bringing people in, you know, whether it's through their workplaces, through organizing um, or, you know, through religious institutions or other means that people are already kind of involved in um, and, and, you know, presenting better information. Um, but honestly, yeah, it, it was a really disheartening week and I'm not sure I have that many answers right now. 
I mean, as somebody who's building an institution, it is an uphill battle. I, you know, when I did cable news, our ratings were sort, I knew which segments I was on. It wasn't about me. It was about, we knew exactly what worked and didn't. And then when you come into these, these, these spaces with the algorithms, you're on the left, you're a woman, you're a person of color. How nice, how nice of you to join. Meanwhile, Ben Shapiro and his squeaky voice and his conspiracy theories and Dan Bogino, whatever, can dominate these spaces and make millions, literally millions of dollars a month. Um, I mean, it's, is it just about institutions? Like there, there has to be a point where, I mean, I'm listening to some of these hearings on Capitol Hill and I'm like, okay, cool. Now they finally understand that the internet works. It's a thing. Congratulations. By the time they catch up, I mean, they literally went to Congress to kill them and they're still like, well, you know, Facebook does donate a lot of money to my campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think, um... I think it's a it's a long slog and I think it's all connected like you're saying you know it's like there's the role of of big tech and you know there's the we, we have the pretense in social media of like there's some way to get around like the major news outlets it's not all about Fox anymore etc um, but then you know we have private companies that are you know run by all sorts of conservative forces and so on and they they are completely unaccountable and um and um you know there's no transparency uh you know these things really should be considered public goods um you know that sh that should be under public scrutiny um you know and and so you have you have all of that going on and you have you know all of the um uh you know economic realities um where uh women are being left out of the workforce or leaving the workforce or still getting paid, um, you know, 82 cents to the man's dollar, or even more so um, when you start talking about um, around racial lines, black women, um, or the differences between moms and dads, all of that, you know, you, you know, you know, the whole, um, the whole list of things, but, you know, we're up and, and we started out by talking about the attack on abortion rights, like, we are up against a fundamentally, you know, sexist, society and infrastructures it's a it's a long slog um and it's gonna require us you know fighting at, at every level and i think there's 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 windows and there's pockets um of of change that we can really get behind and you know you mentioned about you know the what, what's happening on capitol hill you know i was incredibly inspired last week to see the discussion about Palestine um, led by Rashida Tlaib and AOC and Ilhan Omar, Cory Bush, all of these folks, you know, that are, you know, these are not, these are women, um, these are working class women, and, um, you know, these are uh, women of color who were absolutely not groomed to take power, you know, they are the opposite of having been groomed to take power, they're getting a lot, a lot of uh, heat for it. Um, especially from from the right, but you know we have a real um, opening and opportunity there to 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 support that, to build solidarity, to push for more. Um, you know, I think it's a it's part of a whole picture that needs to be tackled. All right, final thoughts, Julia. Have any final thoughts? I uh, I'm not going to follow that. I think those are great points. Agreed. More working class women in office, uh, less Joe Rogan, more working class women. And uh, is there a, does anybody know if there's any sort of DSA organizing around challenging big tech? Because I feel like this is worse than like the 70s. 
You know, that's a very good question that I, I wish I knew the answer to. And I'm, I'm not sure. It. Yeah, I'll look into it, but definitely. definitely needs to be more organizing. Julie Rock, thanks for joining us. Go check out the Daily Poster, Hadass Thier. She is an, she's an amazing activist with DSA Brooklyn, but she's also the author of A People's Guide to Capitalism and Introduction to Marxist Economics. I think I told you my friend's 13-year-old daughter uh, was reading it. That is so awesome. I know. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> she's reading Chomsky, too. I'm like, no, you got to wait. Like, you have to... <laughs> mature your thoughts a little bit first but i would gladly go on any reading list alongside of chomsky uh, yes that's, <laughs> that's very good 13 year old reading list all right thank you guys so much for joining us um for fem friday uh yog greg hoff says does Nomi like barbara wine i just got into it i do like barbara wine um am i gonna go on my wine rant okay all of the servers of the world that ever have to serve me being a former server, I understand, and a bartender, <laughs> a cocktail waitress. Um, I am really particular with alcohol, and it's because as I get older, if I mix, I get incredible migraines, which is, I get migraines already, which I think a lot of you know, but then they get really, really bad if I mix, and I could just have like two glasses, or I, I can't even go on a wine tasting anymore, because if I mix blends, if I mix uh, white and red, I get really bad migraines, so I'm always the driver, but um, I, in particular with wines, which is my choice, uh, my alcohol choice normally, I stick with certain regions and Italian can be hit or miss. I like Barbera. I like, um, Barbera is great. Uh, what's the other one I really like from Italy? Oh my God, I'm losing it right now. But I tend to drink, Malbecs are the most drinkable. Carboneras are incredibly drinkable for me. I don't get headaches and it's because of how, um, unfortunately, like it's, I don't drink any U.S. wines. I'm sorry, U.S. It's, it's the worst, but it has to do with not just the sulfites, but the, uh, pesticides and how it, the water sources work. And, um, they've banned a bunch of this stuff in, in different parts of the world. So Spanish I do well with, um, South African I do well with, I, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. Chilean I do well with, uh, <laughs> uh, basically anything in South America I do pretty well with, um, South African, I said, New Zealand, uh, Spanish, some parts of Italy, but not all. French, no thank you. Greek, I do when I'm in Greece, but honestly, I don't do great with them either. I think that's pretty much it. Am I missing anything? I don't know what Dorsey probably does. Oh, Turkish wines are actually really good as a Greek. Don't tell anybody I said that. All right, that's enough about the wine, but I could, we could do a whole segment on wine. All right, Alex Orlowski says, there should be a modern garbage people of the week segment, mo modern garbage people of the week segment on the show, solely covering Joe Rogan toxic masculine gas i'm gonna you know what we should do this because i'm not you know people are like oh joe's fine no he's not he has the most popular podcast in the world the amount of attention people focus on tucker carlson and sean hannity not enough is on joe rogan who what he said is insane and just because he says something a little bit more like left one day of the week or has somebody who's leftist or normie on another it's, it's a slow roll it's an indoctrination program not to mention that these spaces are completely undemocratic. And like, this is a major crisis. When Fox News is more democratic than, than I, come on, at least they, I, yes, I, I, we'll think about that. All right, Craven James says, Joe had to say, I'm not joking in that clip because none of his jokes have ever been funny. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's because of the steroids. Um, shout out, shout outs to everyone in that live chat. Thank you so much. Uh, there were quite a bit of trolls out today, and not just about our show, I think Majority Report also had them. So thank you to all of our moderators. 
thank you to the uh, the algorithm patrollers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and make sure if you are not already to like and subscribe on our channel on YouTube. And of course, as always, join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Tune in Monday. Episode four of the committee program is on. You can check out the previous episodes Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and Twitch uh, till 6 p.m. It's incredible. They've been up to some really good stuff. Go check them out on social media. Check us out on social media as well, as you know. And with that, have a wonderful weekend. And as always, stay in solidarity. Thank you, Will. Also here Here's the, the full clip Fox. of my Fox the hit. The Namiki Show. Namiki, thank you for being with me tonight. You just heard the numbers. I just did the tally while Jason was speaking. $5.6 billion in revenue to Big Pharma so far through the COVID-19 vaccine. I've read your Twitter feed. I've seen a lot of your comments, Namiki. You've been pretty aggressive. You've <laughs> said that conservatives or anyone else who has questions about the vaccine are anti-vaxxers. You pointed Joe Rogan, I believe, once and called him an anti Vaxxer. Is it wrong to have questions about the motivations of this vaccine? Is it wrong right now to remain skeptical of Big Pharma? Well, I love that you're skeptical of Big Pharma, just like Katie Porter was skeptical of Big Pharma uh, just yesterday, who's a representative from California, a Democrat. And just like Bernie Sanders has put forward three pieces of legislation to rein in on Big Pharma and the fact that they're focused on profits. Listen, AbbVie, this is a pharmaceutical company, made it spent $1.6 billion in five years on research and development, yet $50 billion went to shareholders, $13 billion went to stock buybacks in, during that five-year period. Their priorities are absolutely Namiki, that's in the absolutely, places, that backs be, up the point. I'm sorry, Namiki, but the question isn't why yeah, I, I have grown skepticism towards Big Pharma. The question is why those on the left, like yourself, have become such blind followers of Big Pharma. Why is it if you have questions... Well, Namiki, you've been calling anyone that would question Big Pharma when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine an anti-vaxxer. When did you place your trust so blindly in people that stand to make $5.6 billion from this vaccine? It, the definition of intelligence is being able to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time and be able to consider. Big Pharma makes a lot of money and they're not spending enough money on research and development, which is where their priority should be. But they so should be trusted blindly on this issue? Other pharmaceuticals are stronger. It's not blind. The science is out about the vaccines. The vaccines work. Should there be a booster? I'm no scientist, but neither is Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan should not act like a scientist. Joe Rogan should not be telling Mickey, people not to wear masks. Here's the, not here's, to here's the take truth. The vaccine. This is he what is I'm concerned about. I'm concerned planet. you are a big vaccine booster now, not not because you believe the science backs it up, but because the vaccine has come to represent a political ideal, a political signifier, a political fight on which you think you can win and claim the banner of science. But the wild thing about it, Namiki, is it exposes hypocrisy so blatantly for anyone on the left right now. Do you realize that Big Pharma, when it comes to... I think to that's absolutely... Hold on, I'm hold sorry, on, no hold on, really quickly. Do you realize... But that is a Bernie Sanders bill. Do you realize that the vaccine <laughs> you're, 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 makers... You're supporting the left right now. Excuse me right now. I'm, I'm supporting you're, you're su honest Americans having independent free thought to make a choice about what they inject into their body. And I think when the pharmaceutical companies have complete liability protection on the COVID-19 vaccine, you on the left have chosen a unique time, a really interesting time to all of a sudden call, all, all of a sudden call people who clear. have questions anti-vaxxers. the Republicans who pushed the liability protection. It was not the Democrats. The uh, Bernie Sanders and Katie Porter are the ones that are advocating to rein in on the pharmaceutical companies' profits so they can put more money into research and development. Which only begs the question, which, Namiki, which uh, only begs the question, why now did you do, which only begs the question, why now did you do an about face and all of a sudden say that anyone that has questions is an anti-vaxxer? Why now?
No, 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 no. I think Joe Rogan is an anti-science person. There's a difference between being an anti-vaxxer and believing that COVID doesn't exist. He did not believe COVID really existed until recently. I mean, that's I, the, uh, the difference I don't here. think that's we fair, believe in science nor do I think reason, that's accurate. Which is why pharmaceuticals should spend money on research and development and not their right. shareholders. That's the difference. The profit I think, uh, motive. The, the Mickey... profit motive should be in science. I'm sorry. Yes. I think that's an unfair characterization of what Joe Rogan said or what he believes. I think that you on the left have found a very unique time on an emergency use application vaccine that has complete liability protection to switch to all of a sudden have an about face on your trust in Big Pharma. And I think you did it. I think you did it because I you have, thought it was a win over Republicans. Science. That's all. Nothing no. more, nothing no, no. deeper. The Republicans want to keep their base. See, what's happening right now is you guys want to prolong. The pandemic is ending, and you want to keep everybody angry at COVID and the assault on freedom because you have to wear masks. God forbid you have to keep your community safe and your grandmother safe. You want to keep that going because it's been working. I got to run to make you. I want to say alive. two things. I thank you for coming on the yes. program. I always enjoy a spirited thank exchange you. of ideas, and I think that what I'm standing up for tonight is I'll independent Americans that. having the ability to make freedom of choice, specifically on the very intimate decision of what they inject into their bodies. Thank you to Mickey. have probably the expert on solidarity. Jane McAlevey is here to talk about organizing with unions and how we get progress moving in the Biden administration. And then later we have Francesca Fiorentini. She is joining our show for a lively conversation about what's going down on the left and why it actually matters to call it out now. We actually have to start thinking about solidarity and that's what this show is about. So stick around. We'll be right back with the one and only Jane McAlevey.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm so excited. It's Friday and one of my favorite guests is on today. I'm so excited. Jane McAlevey is not only an organizer, an author, and a scholar. She is the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fighting for the Labor Movement. Also the author of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and a collective bargain unions organizing in the fight for democracy. She works as a strike correspondent for the nation. She's the national deputy director for strategic campaigns on healthcare. Oh, that's important. <laughs> All of these important things that she's been doing. I, the list goes on and on. Jane, you are, you are what we need right now. I am ready to go to church, please. We've been advocating on our show, but I am, I just read you and I just regurgitate it. So now we're going to the source. We've been preaching for the last uh, few months that there's no way to move a progressive agenda forward for working people unless unions are at the table. But, you know, what you've highlighted in this article in The Nation, which I have not mentioned, by the way, uh, is you wrote a piece in The Nation called Why Unions Must Recommit to Expanding Their Base, is that there is there is essentially uh, a problem with many unions, not all of them, but many unions uh, on the left uh, in terms of how they understand power, right? And how they deal with power. And this is the moment where we actually have to push the pressure points of the Biden administration. And it feels like unions are the only way to do so. But if they're not unified, then how do we do this? So first off, thanks for joining. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. It's always good to be here. It's always nice to talk with you. Thank you. It's true. Yeah, smart, engaging. We're so happy to have you doing what you're doing. You know, we all have a part. So, uh, Jean, <laughs> let's let's just first start off with why aren't unions, which which are membership based organizations, right, um, trade unions, why don't they have the ability to really pressure the administrations, the recent Democratic administrations, the way that they were maybe three decades ago, four days, decades ago. Boy, that is, we could be here for 10 weeks. Um, but, you know, in, seriously, but like, it, there's so much to say about that. But in short, it starts with one, they're weaker. We're weaker, right? I mean, frankly, it isn't just us. It's all of the progressive forces, civil rights, I mean, all of it, right? It's like every institution um, in this country is, sadly, every institution that matters for progressive politics um, has been bludgeoned for 40 to 50 years, depending on the institution, right? So I think the context is every progressive sort of sector, the traditional black church, the traditional civil rights movement, the traditional labor movement, the women's movement, however you define that, you know, I mean, every institution and there's lots of academic literature for whatever it's worth about just like the state of like civil society, which this week, even saying those words, is like, Aha, we're discussing the Confederacy. We'll get there in a minute. But like before the events of this week or before even the last few years, meaning let's just go back to Obama for a minute, right? Like, like, like suspend reality for just a minute. Even in the Obama administration, the entire progressive movement showed up for that moment weaker than we had been in the 50s, 60s, 40s, you know, go way back. So there is a general weakness, and that's what I'm really addressing in No Shortcuts, right? In my book, No Shortcuts, I go back to the early 70s, and I trace a series of decisions, what I think of as strategic mistakes, on the part of the entire progressive movement, including unions. I like to put unions in that conversation. We're not different than the social movement, not the parts I work with. We are part of a broader social movement, all of which 
has been desperately, horribly, deliberately weakened by neoliberalism, right? That's what the rise of neoliberalism was. Budget cuts, austerity, hacking, state budgets, federal budgets, all of it. So unions show up to the table weaker because everybody's weaker. But we also know that unions have had a particular they've been a particular obsession and focus for good reason on the part of the organized right. Um, and that focus was a right wing that better understands than the Democratic Party. Uh, there's a lot of things, sadly, that they understand better. But in particular, it's like the right wing, the Koch brothers, the well-funded right wing understood that to take down the regulatory apparatus of the United States, they had to first take down unions. So unions were like the center of the bullseye of the institutional organizations to take down for the last 40 to 50 years. And that is essentially what I outlined in No Shortcuts, which, you know, was like a PhD dissertation. So they come to it weak. And then there's all of the, um, again, not unique to unions, but we're going to focus on them, right, I think. But um, then there's all of the sort of internal self-inflicted wounds um, that as our movements get weaker, they're so good at doing to ourselves. Um, that's it's just got to end. You know, it's like it's way got to end because we are not going to be able to put pressure in this moment on this administration unless we figure out how to like, as I say in the article, stop running with scissors and start figuring out that solidarity and putting pressure on these these this new crew that's making so many bad appointments already. But anyway, like it's gonna take serious work for us to, to sort of eat, even, just, even just make sure that the money that we need to end COVID and to keep people alive and housed, that's gonna be a war in like the first hundred days, I think. So, you know, okay. everyone comes to this moment weaker and we need to be a lot stronger. And Georgia just pointed the way for us along with some other, you know, bases among the progressive institutions. You I want to ask a question, but you, we talk about scissors. What do you mean by that? Like Not the, running with scissors? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, just, you know, I wrote the article several weeks back, right? Because it was going in the print edition. And of course, they announced yesterday the labor secretary pick, which was not, uh, had not been announced when I was working on that most recent piece. But, you know, the, the, the minute that there was like an official, forget about the president or anyone else, but, you know, an official understanding that Biden had won, there was an immediate war broke out between the national unions about who they want. First of all, there was two things wrong with this, but like who they wanted for the labor secretary. I was critical several weeks back in a different article saying, why are our ambitions so low? Do you think that the business community wakes up and says, all they're worried about is who can they get for the SEC position or for commerce? No, they're worried about stacking every single appointment in the entire That's administration. Right. Right. They don't just carve out and say, oh, we're just going to worry about one little sector of power. Um, like I kept saying, for example, someone else I know that you've had on your show and why not? Um, I kept saying that you know, the head of the flight attendant union, that Sarah Nelson, people kept saying, she should be labor secretary. And, you know, in little social media banter, I kept saying, no, she should be the transportation secretary. Mm. She should be freaking transportation secretary. Like you mean not people to judge? <laughs> right? Like that? What the hell? It's like, it's like tone deaf. We think so small because we're used to losing so often. And it's a, not having ambition when my first book was called Raising Expectations, like what organizers do, like we have to raise our expectations and Georgia helps us do that despite the Confederacy marching in the Capitol, despite everything else. 
If we keep our eye in our happy place for the week, which is what happened in Georgia, it's not just a happy place to go to, it's also deeply meaningful to unpack in terms of how do we set higher expectations for what we know what we deserve, but also for what we're gonna demand. And an example of watching sort of I don't even what you call the sectors, left progressives, whatever, constantly people constantly, and Sarah would laugh, I think, if she was here, because I kept like including her in this banter, you know, on social media, people would say, we would need her for labor secretary. And I would respond to every person and say, God darn it, we need her for transportation secretary. Like there's plenty of people to fill in for labor secretary, right? But she's like, literally like, she's like, why don't we think of her as someone who's in charge of logistics? For the world, which would be so much more important, actually, it would be in some ways, right? Given, given for the labor movement, even like if we could get one pick, I might have taken that one or education, right? But instead, we were so don't run the scissors. Was like the 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 the, the demands were so small already that the, that a fight broke out about who should be labor secretary. So one, the national labor movement was not fighting about transport, education, commerce, you know, all the rest of it. They were focused on one like teeny little part of the federal government, an important one, but they're all really important. Um, and then secondly, they just began to fight. Like there was no, there was no thought that we could hold, that we could even like fight behind the scenes maybe, you know what I mean? People just began fighting openly and they were fighting openly about essentially, initially, honestly, even though one of them is different than the other two, but like three different white men, right? Which is right. Marty Walsh, the former mayor of Boston or current mayor of Boston, comes out of the building trades. Andy Levin, my former boss at the AFL-CIO, who's the congressperson now in Michigan. And then of course, Bernie Sanders. Um, and I remember thinking early on, I, I thought Bernie could do some other stuff. Same thing, like Bernie should have had, we should have had way bigger ambitions for where he should be in this administration. Sure. But anyway, we digress. So the issue was, not running with scissors is about, could you, could you build some discipline into the work we're doing and figure out behind the scenes, like what's the agreed upon number one, two and three position? Could it maybe be something other than, um, not, that it, not that I lead with identity as a general habit, I think it's all very intermixed, right? Our whole movement needs to be deeply class, race, gender intermixed, but like really three, three older white guys in this moment in history when most of the labor movement's one of color, like in the growing sectors of the economy. Anyway, this, so this is, that's a key point. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, um, you know, you know, I'm involved, I'm on the board of matriarch. And one thing that we keep hitting over the head is why the conversation right now, all of these frontline workers, I mean, granted, there are many industries that have been on the front lines, but when you see teachers, when you see domestic workers, when you see nurses, uh, flight attendants, of course, these are women-led unions and majority women held uh, made up of unions. And, and, and I, many of those unions are majority women of color. So it's just blinding <laughs> that we're having these conversations in 2021 at this point with the Biden administration who owes its presidency to women of color, owes its Senate to women of color in a pandemic, yeah, in a global potentially depression. Yeah. And this is the conversation we're having. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? And I also point out in the article that in 1932, right, when the first labor secretary was appointed, it was Frances Perkins, a woman. Like in a moment when the trading movement was for all sorts of sexist historic reasons, right? And the patriarchy, et cetera, was a much more, in terms of wage work, right? It was a much more male world. And even in 1932, they appointed a woman 
to be the head of the Department of Labor and who happened to be brilliant. You know, we can thank her for many of the most important laws still in the books today. Um, so it just seemed like an ambitionless moment um, to me to have labor leaders running around, lining up which union would back which of those three guys was just sort of like, oh, really folks, can't we do better than this? It's, it's, it's a labor movement so beaten down uh, that its own expectations for what it deserves are so small. And I think that's, that's how, as a labor organizer, that is how you meet that, that that's like the first, it's why my first book is called Raising Expectations, literally, which I remember like Verso and publishers and people saying, what does that even mean? And I would say the first job of an organizer is to like re-raise individual workers' expectations and then collectively that they deserve more than a crap quality of life that they've been handed by neoliberalism because people get so beaten down individually. They think, oh, if I can just hang on to my job, if I can just get a, you know, a small raise, if I can just get a, and that's, you know, so there's a problem with individual workers being beaten down in this country. And then depending on the kind of worker really beaten down. Um, and there's a problem with the whole movement's expectations of what we deserve and what we can demand. And I, for one, am sick and tired of small demands. Like this is the moment to rip it up and say we're starting again, like at many levels. And if we don't start with that kind of ambition, with big vision and big, big ambition, we're not going to get very far. And then we have to pair that with very real strategy in the there field. There you go. Because there That's is great. strategy. Like there are ways that we know how to win. And Georgia just showed it to us again, that we did not win Georgia between November and January 5th. We won, we didn't even win it. And then people are like, oh, Stacey Abrams. It's like, we didn't, it, it didn't even start with Stacey though. I'm thank, so thankful for her role in the work in Georgia of lifting up voter suppression. But there's been an army of people on the ground all across Georgia building a real, what we call base expansion, right? That's like the title of my article. Like people don't even know what base expansion means. That's where we're, that's where we're going out and knocking on doors of people who are not involved in anything anyone's doing and beginning to engage them in rebuilding small D democracy. That is the work right now. And Georgia just stands out as a beacon of hope. You know, and I, I've been saying to people for the last couple of days, I wanna look at Georgia and the extraordinary base expansion work done there and and a movement that was ready and capable. I mean, if you ask folks in Georgia, did they understand the day before the official presidential election back in November, that the weight of the entire country was gonna be on their one state, right? If they, if they were not, if they did not already have a really extraordinary ground level grassroots organizing infrastructure, they couldn't have walked into the moment that they ran into uh, like firefighters and saved the rest of us. You know what I mean? So it, literally the presidency and the Senate. Yes. But here's, here's the thing that, that, you know, tying this into the democratic party. I mean, I've, I've been, uh, I've made a good chunk of my last like 10 years of my life assessing the democratic party to my own disdain. Um, wasted you. time. Oh. No, wasted time. Maybe God, goddess bless you. Yes. <laughs> But um, it's no secret that, that the Democrats sucked money away from state parties and local organizing, but it was simultaneously happening. It didn't happen just over the Obama years. It, it started back late 70s. But simultaneously, this was happening as unions were being, uh, you know, they were declaring war. The Koch brothers were declaring war on unions. And, you know, the, the way that I see, so we had the House for 30 years until, uh, was it 94? We lost the House. That to me is is a response to the Democratic Party and, and unions being disconnected, not just from each other, 
strategically because they because union members were purged from the Democratic Party membership, but also with the grassroots. And so when you don't have unions organizing and recruiting, and I mean, when I was a kid, I used to make phone calls at union halls. I don't even know if people do that anymore I for know. their local I candidates. Know. And I'd stuff envelopes. I mean, this is this is a different era, but but it, it's just the Democratic Party used to always be hand in hand recruiting candidates, recruiting staff, organizing, training in every single city in the, in the country. And I feel like it's, it's a shame that there's people have to take it upon themselves like they did in, in, in Georgia and fundraise for their local county party or local group to make phone calls and register voters. I and mean, that's what the Democratic Party used to be in conjunction with unions. Yeah. So with that, I, my, my big takeaway from this and, and question is, why is union leadership? so afraid right now. I mean, I understand that they've been under attack, but we've got a Democratic president. I mean, this is the time to move. So what, what, where's the fear here? You know what the fear is? The fear is the, 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 the piece that I focused on, which is confusing access with power. Um, and that's a fundamental error of judgment that many make, but unions make it more because in a, in a beaten down progressive movement outside of a handful of, you know, Warnocks, frankly, like top black church leaders in the sort of legacy civil rights movement outside of a handful of key actors in the civil rights movement institutionally. I don't mean really individually. Institutionally, the labor movement is still the most powerful movement within the progressive tent. As beaten down as we are, we still have more access and more power and more money. And so what happens, and it really was a huge mistake under the Obama administration, is that the minute that Obama won, uh, he turned around and basically said to the entire labor movement and to every progressive group, by the way, Valerie Jarrett, I'm sorry, but playing the role that she played in the early years of Obama. (laughs) I mean, talk about someone who was enforcing discipline like an enforcer. You know, Jarrett basically said to many people I know very closely, you can test us in public. You will never have even you'll never even attend a meeting. You won't be invited to like the the, the lowest level meeting in the history of the White House. You will be out. And so there was a very, I mean, it was so intense the first year, how strongly they said to people, you will get in relationship to how nice you are to us in public, basically. You will not contest the Barack Obama administration in public. That was like super strong and enforced. And when people crossed it, they cut them off, like they cut them out of meetings, they cut them. And what, and part of what I say in the article is, who gives a crap, really? Because the two institutions that won big under Obama were the two sectors of the progressive movement who said, we don't care. Like we're not gonna do being nice to you, playing behind the scenes, backroom deal-making, thinking that we're important because we're showing up in our suits to your meetings at the White House and to your cocktail parties. We don't care. Like we're out to win. That was the LGBT community and the immigrants' rights community. Yep. Those two sec, and they were cut out. I mean, in the long history of the Obama administration, if you go back to the inside plays that were going on, they did cut them out of like formal, you're not on our commissions, you're not getting appointments to low-level positions. And people were like, yeah, we, we don't really care because we're dying um, or, we, or we're getting you know, killed and we can't be married and everything else that the LGBT community demanded. But, and the immigrants' rights community, these are the people who went in and said, yeah, we don't care. 
We're going to protest. We're going to occupy. We're going to demand. We're going to go after you to hold you accountable to our base. And they got the biggest gains in that eight-year period. And that's the lesson I'm trying to lift up in the article is that we're not going to win things by being nice to the Biden people. We're going to win things by actually out organizing them, building power, showing power, um, and getting back to the work the way we know how to do it, which is holding politicians accountable. That's that's like to me that that's the, the first thing I learned as a young trading organizer coming out of a very smart, very good union that I didn't realize how good and smart we were way, 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 way back in the day when I was a lot younger. Um, the very first thing I learned and the very first thing I was taught was when we elect a politician, the first thing we do is put a test in front of them to hold them accountable to that demand because we need to teach a lesson to them early on that we have power and we are not gonna just acquiesce to you. That's like the opposite of what the national trade union movement is doing right now. So, you know, the, 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 longer, the longer I live, the more I realize my very first experiences were so good um, in terms of getting strategy right. And now you gotta have an organizational, you gotta have an organization strong enough to actually hold them accountable. But we, if the labor movement, if even, if even like the eight unions that are the ones that I call still trying, you know, I would say there's like, there's the labor movement, and then there's the eight unions that are still trying. If even just those eight would right. agree on strategy, um, we could seriously hold the Biden administration accountable to a set of demands that workers and the working class are desperate for in the United States. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is we've broken this down with with different experts in the last few weeks saying even though unions are weaker than they've ever been, even though you, there are good unions and, and mediocre unions and definitely some bad unions, yep. the good ones, if they just got on the same page and pressured them, it, there's there's so much at stake that Biden, I mean, he owes everything to labor at this point. And also he has to do something. I mean, the moment is the crisis. It's yeah. not it's not the movement that has leverage. It's the moment that has the leverage. So, I mean, with that being said, for those, for those of us who don't have, um, in the audience, who don't have experience in unions, how do we reform from within? How do we make the leadership more accountable to its members yeah, so that they're actually taking those moves? Yeah, two, two things and two examples. Um, one is, you know, I was just involved in a call this morning, uh, as I frequently am, um, working with a lot of teachers unions um, who themselves are making demands on their national leadership, right? So you've got strong local unions. It's the, the only way it's really going to happen is when members, same relationship between our movement and Biden and, and Harris and company has got to be between uh, rank and file members and their local unions and their national leadership. It's about holding people accountable, right? So um, there have been a series, an increasing series of demands, certainly in the teachers unions where you've got, you've got strong enough locals from Chicago to LA to Oakland to fill in the blank, like a bunch of them, who are, who are coordinating and making demands on their national leadership to demand more, not less. Um, right now to demand, you know, we impeach the lunatic, uh, the genius lunatic Confederacy member uh, before um, he's out, you know, with the language that says you can never run again. So, so that's the way it's going to work. Um, even in 2016, after the 2016, just if you look at the teacher unions as an example, in 2016, when the American Federation of Teachers did this super early endorsement of Clinton, uh, it out, you know, it outraged a lot of the rank and file teacher union leaders. And so the result was they came back and changed the language two years later in the national convention so that the national leadership couldn't go out and do an early endorsement without the sign off on the base. So that's real accountability. That's a really good example. 
of you've got to have locals strong enough to take risk. And almost the same parallel discussion goes on. If you've got local leaders that members aren't pushing, who may want to rise into national leadership or something, they're going to think to themselves, um, I shouldn't cross you know, I shouldn't cross the top union leadership. Well, first of all, it's wrong to think that making a demand of your union leadership is crossing them, right? Like if you've got a set of demands and you were elected locally that you're making on them, that's a completely legitimate way to, to, to move. So that's one thing and that's real. And that's got to happen in a bunch of unions. That's strong locals, that members make demands on their locals and strong locals make demands on the national union to push them harder and farther than they're willing to go. Um, to get them out of their comfort zone, to not be worried about pissing off, you know, Harris or Biden or whoever it is, or whoever the chief of staff role is going to be, or whoever any number of the, the gatekeepers are. Like, don't worry about offending the gatekeepers, you know, worry about losing. You know, I'd worry more about losing than offending a gatekeeper. That's one. Two is the other part that I wrote about, which holds, which holds all of labor accountable to a broader social movement agenda, is sort of the method and the approach of rank and file members themselves being the ones to deeply engage their broader community. Um, in the coalition work at the local level so that it's going to be harder so that when you get to the local level, a state level or a big city or whatever, local, out of the national riffraff of the headquarters, um, in campaigns that I run, the thing I always do is we chart the members' connections, not just to each other at work. That's a, a good union organizer does that. But the thing I'm suggesting that good union organizers have to do next, which people don't do because it's not in our tradition yet, is then equally systematically chart the relationships that existing rank and file members have inside of their broader community to their church groups, to their civil rights groups, ah. to their immigrant rights groups. And then the members become a source of holding using their own community ties to hold their unions accountable to broader social justice goals, to a form of political education that's bigger. So the very first campaign I ran in Sanford, Connecticut, just in, for a second, years of dating myself. So I don't even know if you were born. When were you born? Anyway, a long damn time ago, last century. <laughs> so last century, in like one of the first campaigns I ran, that's when I learned this lesson that we charted all the members' connections in particular. We had a lot of them in the big black churches in the community that we were organizing in. And there was a housing crisis emerging. And I was saying to the leadership, we gotta work on this, you know, this, this, this plan to gentrify the whole region. Um, and the unions, honestly, which I talked about in my first book, the union leaders were pretty good. We're like, that's not our issue. Why don't you call up Acorn? Acorn still existed. That's how long ago this was. Anyway, but like you go call up those housing groups and I'm like a young organizer going, how come when I'm on the doors with rank and file members and all they're talking about is the fact that they're all going to be moved out of the city, then that's a labor issue. And we were able to leverage that becoming a major labor issue where we put in our skill and resources because we had the members go to their churches and have the churches make the demands of the union leaders when the union leaders were making demands on the picket lines, right? So it was, that's member led accountability over a local program to hold the trade union movement accountable to broader social justice demands. So we have to strengthen the trade unions, but also have a strong community-based sector that can hold them accountable to things like Black Lives Matter and much more than that, housing for God's sakes, you know, like really big issues that are affecting workers. Right especially right now. We, we have a question from, from one of our supporters, Vinny Holiday. He says, do you think union culture has to change such that members are not simply passive members, but also politically aware and active? And I think that that's part of the point you were just making, but how, how would you do that institutionally in, in, internally um, within a union? 
Yeah. So I think I think that this this process of charting the members' connections that they have already to their community organically is a central way to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's so uncommon. It's so rarely done. But when we do it, what what begins to happen is that rank and file workers begin to understand the broader political analysis of the labor market in which they live. So in Philadelphia, I'll give another example, get myself out of, out of Connecticut, and I'll go to Philadelphia in 2016. In Philadelphia in 2016, we were organizing most of the nurses in Philadelphia hospitals to form new unions. And we got to the point where the organization inside the shop was really strong, meeting inside the hospitals. Like the nurses had now built really strong internal organization. And we still didn't have enough power at the bargaining table to win yet. Like we needed more power than we had. So then we went into phase two, which was controversial we did it. It always is when I'm leading it, but the members like it. So that's, a, that's good, for, it's good enough for me, members like it. We began to chart all their connections to you know, black churches and all the places that they already had connections in their community. And when we began to sort of show a power structure analysis of greater Philadelphia to a room of 300 newly organized rank and file nurse leaders across seven hospitals, and they began to, we began to show So your CEO is in a relationship to this set of power players in the city, but you're the leader of your your three biggest, most powerful black churches that just hosted Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, fill in the blank. It was 2016, right? Everyone's coming to Philadelphia. But we began to show in simple maps the relationship between their hospital CEOs and how political power was working in Philadelphia. Those nurses political education was rocked in a way it never really had been. And they were all the first to say it. So part of what I say in the article is we have to build stronger, more resilient communities and the labor movement needs to see part of its job as doing that. And the method to do it is this thing I call comprehensive charting where you go from from charting workplace connections to charting our connections to the community through the lives of the rank and file. Because if if you, let's acknowledge what a worker is gonna say. You know, it, it can be hard to go up against your union leadership if you're one rank and file worker. But what we did in Connecticut 30, whatever years ago, just about, is I understood that. I had been saying to the union leadership, we need to work on this housing fight, gentrification, bulldoze all the housing. And the leaders were resisting. So we got some people who had more power than either me as an organizer or the rank and file leaders as individuals. We had them quietly working the very powerful black church leadership in that city. And then they went to the union leaders and said, you want us to help you on these organizing drives and on these strikes and picket lines and budget fights? We're down for that. And we need you in turn to have us, to be with us in stopping the gentrification of the city. And we rose to that moment, right? So it's for each worker, even in a local fight, it's about thinking about that power analysis and who can you bring along with you to make the demands of your leadership, who not just members, that's first and foremost, but then who else can you bring along that's going to help move the local union leadership, just like we need to bring those players into debates with the national union leadership to move people on a broader agenda. That's a social justice agenda that's going to build a stronger, more vibrant, politically educated team of voters going to the polls in the next election. Like that is what we need in this country. desperately. And, and what I love about that is you you're reminding people of the power that they already have. I think a lot of folks feel hopeless in, in these moments of crisis. And then when it when you start to break it down, you think, oh, no, no, I've got I've got a whole community here and this is, and they have my back because they have a stake at the table as well. Um, we have a question real quick before we wrap up. It's, it's, I, I love talking power with you because people ask tough questions about power and, yeah. and don't have an opportunity. It's great. So um, 
Columbia McAleve, and I, I apologize if I didn't say your name right, uh, says, respect to you. Hope to attend uh, your strike school. Are you, are you doing another strike school? Doing another strike school. Yeah, we haven't announced a date yet, May or June. Though we're, okay. we're, people should be looking for like a May, June. Perfect. School. I will be at that. Uh, what are your thoughts on using Pelosi's reelection to speakership as leverage for a strategy? And of course, this is, this is sort of an evolution, a smart question though, evolution out of this big, Medicare for all debacle that happened on uh, the podcast left, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. And I, I have to be honest, I've only been on the margins of watching that debate a That's little okay. bit. So You're fine. <laughs> I'm glad you were on the margins. Worrying about Georgia turnout was more important anyway. Yeah, so, it was, wasn't it? Interesting. I think, I mean, I think there's a couple of things to, to the degree that I was even, I, I finally had to say to some people, what is this fight going on? Anyway, so without getting into it, I will say, um, as someone who talks a lot about what we call structure tests, that part of how we know when we're ready to win is that structure tests can reveal for us, are we capable of winning? What I try to counsel people not to do are structure tests that reveal our weakness, which- That's, wow, that's profound. Do all the time. Like go on out there and yell about something and demand some vote when, when the point of what we, what organizers call real structure tests are we do escalating actions where we begin to understand how close are we to having enough power to win? I hate, and here's, here's the union example. Unions do this all the time. They'll say, um, Fridays are going to be a red, red t-shirt day. Teacher unions do this. Or a lot of, a lot of unions do it. Friday, every week, every Friday, you know, you, you come, you get your orientation, you've been hired at some job or something. And they're like, oh, by the way, and every Friday, we ask everyone to wear their, their union shirt, you know, to, to work. And then I always, the first thing I say to people is, that's interesting. What do you do to make sure that everyone actually is wearing the union shirt? And they're like, well, we just asked them. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. So how many are actually wearing the shirt that you've declared to the employer? It union, union is, union, you know, Friday is union logo day. Um, and you have like 2% of the workers wearing it. So what are you telegraphing to the boss that you have no organization, no loyalty and no structure inside the workplace? Don't do it. So that's my indirect way of saying we only should be calling for things um, I feel like we, we, it, we're better off doing the work that builds our power so that when we make a move, that's a really significant move, we're going to win. I mean, I don't just go on strike because I'm pissed off at the boss and feel like I'm going on strike today. I'm not going to have workers go on strike until, the work, until we have a credible understanding that the level of organization and unity and power built is going to give us a fair shot at winning that fight. So I'm more interested in what's the hard work we have to do to get to the point where we can actually really win the fight. Now, yes, there's some whole debate about there once in a while, you know, we need to force a vote, whatever. But generally speaking, it's not my bias at all. My bias is why reveal weakness when what we should be doing is building our strength. And, and not only that, I mean, historically, uh, this would be very dangerous. If, if, if we were yeah. not in this era, it would actually at least directly, not like through policies and lack of, of response to, to Medicare for all or whatever, it would actually kill people. Directly. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to me, it's, um, again, to the degree that I was frittering around the edges of listening to some of that stuff, I just think um, 
I, you know, I mostly think that there aren't enough people in the sort of self-declared left who have ever had to put their out, uh, something on the line, arses on the line, um, in a win-in, in a win-lose contestation, um, and be held accountable to what the outcome was and what the implications of that outcome were. So for those of us who actually take on really hard fights that have really huge consequences regularly, where 10, 20,000, 100,000, 400,000 people's lives are on the line going into a strike, for example, or a big union election. Um, we're not doing that unless we think we had a reasonable chance to win. That's, That's right. period, right? We, winning matters. And I feel like there's this weird weakness in the US left or the US progressive movement, whereby um, focusing a lot on winning is like somehow something that we don't do. You know what I mean? And I always think our movements get bigger when we win. Georgia's victories right. are gonna lead to other Southern states movements believing That's that right. they can now win. That's when the right. Chicago teachers walked off the job in 2012, they single-handedly through one huge strike re-raise the expectations That's of the education sector that the strike can work again. And so we're having winning strikes again. People need to see people winning yeah. and that then raises their expectation and inspires them. If you see people losing, it isn't very motivating. Here, here, Jane McAlevey took us to church today. I know you got to run. We love you. We hope to have you on again soon. Always a pleasure. Go check out her books. No shortcuts. Definitely a must read. All of her books. We'll put them in the uh, info section. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Really nice to see you. Keep up the good work. You too. You definitely, you too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we go, I want to give a shout out to our new moderator, Chuck Diesel. Uh, he saw me on Clickbait. Clickbaity today. This morning we, uh, uh, oh man, it was, that was a hot morning. If you have not checked out, it's on the Ben Dixon Show channel. Um, Clickbaity Thirst Trap. Thirst Trap. No, Clickbaity Thirst Trap. I always miss it up. We had an amazing morning. Go check it out. Uh, check it out every day, but definitely check out today's show. I was I was honored to be their first white woman on. <laughs> it was real fun. Really, really fun. That's why I'm all jazzed up today. I've had 32 cups of coffee because I was up early. Super, super thanks to our mods, Bob Choke and the Orb and Chuck Diesel, our new mod. Thank you for keeping the chat room troll-free. There are a lot of trolls right now, a lot. So that is a lot of work and Make sure to send us your addresses. We want to send you some swag. All right, guys, have a wonderful weekend. <sighs> I'm out of breath. <laughs> it has been a week. Go get some rest. Hope you can take a walk. Uh, I'm on dry January, so I'm just going to be walking. No wine for me. Be strong. Be well. Solidarity is not a hashtag. The No Mickey Show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues The No Mickey Show